WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 265. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from APG headquarters in a northern Atlanta suburb. In today's episode, jammed elevators, fire truck crashers, propellers flinging, laptops banned, and circular runways. More news, your feedback, and a new Plain Tales episode, Burning the Forestall. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 265 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy show. I'm Captain Jeff. I know, but this guy doing the flying has no airline experience at all. He's a menace to himself and everything else in the air. Yes, birds, too. That's me. I'm a uh, captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier based here in Atlanta, and joining me in the Carolinas, we have a doctor. A doctor, yes. Doctor. Doctor. And a commercial multi-engine instrument-rated pilot, a physiatrist, pilot, strength training junkie, and IPA connoisseur, Doctor Stephanie Plummer. Well, hello, Captain Jeff. Captain hello. Jeffrey Nielsen. <laughs> Good to be back with you for episode 265, and hello to everyone out there listening today. And yes, I do have my favorite IPA with me today, the, the Jane IPA. It's a good one. I'll be consuming that during the show. So. Excellent. Well-deserved, I'm sure. And also joining us from across the pond, we have a Captain Four. A European carrier uh, flying the wide-bodied Airbus 330 and 340s, Captain Nick Anderson. Hi, Jeff. Lovely to see you. Hi, Steph. Steph's looking very good, considering she's just had half her body drained of its life-giving uh, fluids, which uh, is of some mm-hmm. concern to me. She's replacing it with the with the absolute I... necessity of life, though, some alcohol, so... Liquid I, bread. Is there anything else? Is there anything else? <laughs> yes, this is an example of what not to do. Do not listen to this particular doctor on what to do after is, you've gone and donated. Is that not blood. true okay. of doctors? Do, do as I say and not as I do. Not as I do. Go hey. donate blood. Afterwards, <laughs> hydrate slap happy. non-alcoholic beverages. Yeah, it's, it's possible. We'll see. Yeah, I think you can get slap happy. You know, I, I, don't I think... did. I've had plenty of fluids in the past 45 minutes. Okay. Water, Gatorade, more water, and now beer. You know, I don't think I've ever seen Dr. Steph really drunk. No, be so fun. might be a new experience for us all. I think really? I've seen her I've, I've seen her drink massive quantities of alcohol, <laughs> but I've never seen her drunk. There's something wrong with that. Hiding it well. Hiding yes. It well. All right. Also joining us on his motorcycle, we have a former regional pilot, now mad dog operator for... Acme Air Mainline. First Officer Dana Colton. Well, good afternoon, uh, APG uh, community, APG, and uh, Steph, of course, ladies first, Jeff, and Captain Nick. 
Um, great to be back once again and enjoying a beautiful afternoon in the northern Atlanta area, other, other than being a little windy and a little chilly. But uh, it's uh, great to be back as usual, coming back off uh, a great bike week down there in Daytona, which you guys saw me remotely. I do apologize for any of the background noise. And oh, no, that was part of the uh, APG ambiance yeah. that we have on yeah, our show. Yeah, so. How Anyways, was it? Did uh, it warm up? Did it warm? Did it warm up there? Uh, finally, and... by the yeah, by the time we it was time to leave. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So of course, so no story in my life, but it was still a good time. You know, this little, little bit of uh, what uh, Steph was drinking there, what we call the um, liquid antifreeze that's applied to the body. Uh-huh. So we did okay. And slap on some leather. Always good looking leather. Of course, they had to kill four cows to put leather on me. So what did you stra- uh, strap on? I'm sorry, I missed that. Strap on yeah. some leather. Oh, okay. okay. Gotcha. Leather. Okay. leather. That's the accent. Leather. Ah, okay. So, and they had to kill four cows to put to make one jack. Ah, uh, that's not true. Oh, come on now. So, anyways, yeah, it's, uh, glad glad to be back and and seeing uh, see everybody uh, online with us today. Yes, I'm excited. This is going to be a good show. We have a lot of great stuff to talk about. Um, let's see. Um, we just heard about Steph and her blood giving adventures. Um, but I'm kind of curious about something. We talked about this on the last show. Uh, Captain Nick, uh, was joining us from Hoboken or Weehawken, and he was about to, uh, head off back to London on the bin liner. And, uh, I have not heard he survived anything back about that. So it's a miracle. Yeah. So what's, are you going to give us your review? Well, well, I, I think I've, I've proved that uh, the power of prayer, actually. <laughs> yeah, it, I now have empirical evidence that uh, if you if you say the Lord's Prayer enough times, a Boeing 787 will actually fly. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, quite an experience. Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm very glad to say that it actually looks like a real airplane, um, you know, when you kind of see it. So you don't get frightened when you see it out the, the window from the terminal. <laughs> And when you get inside, it's almost a duplicate of uh, the Airbus, quite honestly. Uh, the way our cabins are set up, it's very hard to tell the two apart. We've got the same mood lighting, beautiful, uh, the same seats, which are pretty comfortable, uh, particularly up the front where I was sitting. I did stick my nose in the pointy end and two, saw two very confused pilots, one of whom had made himself nearly bald, scratching his head, trying to work out how this thing operated. Uh, and I don't think they've sussed it yet. They were muttering about uh, magic mushrooms and oofal dust and uh, pixie dust. That was another thing they were talking about. Anyway, they uh, they did wind it up. And uh, the engines, you know, you when you hear one of those uh, old machines cough and bang and splutter and there are great big clouds of black smoke coming out. But eventually, on the third or fourth go, they managed to get... I think at least one of the engines going. Uh, so we uh, kind of roared out of the runway and went off anyway. But uh, to, to be absolutely uh, um, honest, it was a, a smooth and comfortable journey. I spent most of it asleep. Oh, I did actually watch a movie and had a little bite to it. And uh, they did a, a fair fist of the landing. So uh, hats off to the pilots for being able to cope with a, an airplane like that. So uh, they obviously very skilled. Must be some of the best. at. And, uh, and wasn't be. it a rather quick journey? It was. It, I hardly had time for, a, you know, because normally I like to settle down, I, you know, order everything on the menu, uh, mm-hmm. all the wines, 
So uh, you know, start with a little the sample. whites. Yeah. We'll start with the champagne, then the whites, and then go to the reds, and then the sleep uh, some port, and then oh. a, a, perhaps a whiskey to finish, and then roll the bed back and sleep. But I only got about two hours sleep, and they're already waking me up for my next meal. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very quick flight time. To be fair, we had an enormous tailwind. Um, so uh, I was asking the guys if they wouldn't mind going around again a few times so I could get a bit more shut-eye, but I think they were keen to get off there. <laughs> they did not oblige. No, they did not oblige. So uh, all jerking apart, uh, very smooth flight. Um, you know, uh, that, that airplane uh, is as comfortable as everyone says it is, which means it's almost as good as an Airbus. There you go. <laughs> that was a glowing review, if I've ever heard one. Yeah, I mean, from you, yeah. that was amazing. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm trying crazy. to be impartial here. I know I'm going to get uh, uh, a hard time from Cat now, who probably is going to let the uh, Airbus Union know that I'm now going <laughs> no. to be objective. I'm not going to be allowed to renew my membership next year, but uh, there you go. Oh, well. We'll, we'll still keep you here, though. You can, you can be, <laughs> still become, or stay a member of the APG. Yeah, super. No, it was a it was a great flight, um, and I'm doing uh, another sort of uh, passenger flight uh, on Saturday. I got got tomorrow off. I'm just landed from uh, Lagos, and uh, I've decided to pop across to Australia and pay my father a quick visit, very quick visit, uh, as we in the industry say, a flying visit. So uh, I'm going to dive off to Dubai Saturday night. Uh, Try and switch onto an Emirates flight at a very uh, short amount of time. I don't think I'm going to make the first flight, in which case I've got about 15 hours to kill in Dubai Airport. So that sounds pretty awful. Um, There's but, a lot of shopping. Uh, well, yeah, I've done so much <laughs> shopping I can do there, particularly since I've been traveling light. And then uh, hopefully down to uh, Perth. I'll be spending uh, most of next week down in Perth. So if there are any APGs down there, who uh, are interested in getting together, I can almost certainly uh, get free one evening, uh, then uh, please uh, catch me on Twitter or, uh, or um, not Swarm. What's that other one? Um, Facebook. Well, Facebook is a possibility. I'm, oh, I am Slack. on Facebook. Slack. Slack? Oh, Slack. Slack. Yeah. I don't know. And, I'm the social uh, media person here. You think I'd know these? Things. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was thinking of the I was thinking of the uh, APG account or the airline pilot guy account on Facebook. Ah, there you go. Well, any I of could... those, and uh, uh, I will certainly uh, post my details, and uh, we can perhaps get together for a beer uh, around the other side of the globe, which would be great fun. Looking forward to that. You know, I just remembered something. Um, I tried to contact uh, Captain. Bell to get an update on uh, the goings on, uh, the planning for the Wings Over Pittsburgh air show, May uh, 12, 13, 14, Mother's Day weekend. And he called me back, left me a voicemail, because I think it was in the shower when he called. And I thought, he, he basically said, Well, call me because there's so much I need to tell you about that I need to, you know, instead of texting all of this, let's just, you know, talk on the phone. And I forgot to call him back. Sorry, Rick. If you're, is Rick in the chat room? I have not uh, seen him. Don't see no. him, no. See so me. if you're listening to this um, after we've recorded this live, uh, Rick, sorry, I'll call you uh, when the show ends and we'll have an update on everything for the next show. How about that? Um, but we're looking forward to it for sure. Um, I need to make a correction. Um, I think it was last week we were talking about uh, my experience. We talked about that uh, article uh, regarding the Cessna 172. Yeah, uh, that Liz. Oh, you guys in. got to. I missed. I missed that one. 
Oh, you did? Yeah. So yeah. it was a nice okay. article about the 172 and uh, the uh, link to the articles in the show notes. So you can read all about that. Um, and I was, you know, we were talking, or I think the question was, do any of you have any time logged in the 172? And at first I was going to say, well, a little bit. Oh, wait, no, I have actually, that was the airplane I soloed in because it was actually the U.S. Air Force um, edition or model uh, that they called the T-41. And for, I, it's embarrassing because I've been calling it for the last probably two decades, uh, the Muscadero. And so I thought I'd do a little research on, you know, what that, what Muscadero is and you know, what the origin of that word is and that kind of thing. And, and it turns out that um, there is no such word. It's not the T-41 <laughs> Muscadero at all. It's the Mescalero. And close. it sounds close. very close, but uh, close. apparently. I'll give me- you partial credit. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. It yeah. started with an M. Um, the- it's good for eubonics. <laughs> yeah. The Mescalero is actually, and then I thought, well, what the heck is a Mescalero? Uh, so I did look that up, and that is apparently a, uh, an, uh, a Native American tribe from southern New Mexico or something like that. So, anyway, so I just wanted to set the record straight. <laughs> Hopefully anybody so, listening. So let's get this right, Jeff. You invented an entirely new word, a yes. muscadero. A muscadero. And, and we would all like to know what a muscadero is in your uh, imagination. I think that it's a... Um, it's a fine wine grape um, located in the southwestern United States. Um, oh, sorry, uh, a cross blend of a muscat, then. Yes, mm-hmm. and ah. uh, something darrow. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea what a muscadero is. Look out for that wine; it will be very fruity, I'm sure. <laughs> like me. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. So sorry about that, but now the record is straight. Um, I got a nice little picture of the, of the Mescalero in our little show notes here. Uh, a great airplane. Anyway, um, so it's really a, a Cessna 172 with a Continental, what is it, 360 or something like that, 210 horsepower? I don't know. I don't uh, know why uh, Continental uh, 172 is a one, you know, depending on the year, 160 or 180. 160 or 180, but yeah. they could have put something different in the. Yeah, they, the I think they version. have a 210 horsepower version. Doesn't it like it'll do 185 knots? No, I don't think I've no. seen anywhere and anybody claiming no. that it goes that fast. Maybe one, no. maybe 182 RG. Yeah. That may do it. Yeah, I think that was a little bit of fiction in that article that we were talking about. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's awfully fast for you. Yeah. <laughs> like, maybe, you point, maybe you you know get some altitude and point the nose straight, straight at the down. ground. Yeah. yeah. That's the speed just before the wings rip off. Exactly. That's the VNE speed. There you go. That is the VNE speed. Might be, well, the sponsors would probably disappear at that speed, which I noticed has seemed to have happened on your little picture. Or what happened? The sponsors were a bit effeminate for their aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Uh, anything else, um, Steph? We just talked about your blood giving, but anything mm-hmm. else interesting happened this past week? Just work? Just work. Okay. Nothing work, exciting. Work, 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 Dana, I'm sorry, yes. that guy right there, <laughs> I'm pointing at him Hi. right now. Um, <laughs> he uh, just got back from a trip that he, you know, he was just talking about uh, with a guy named Captain Tony Fender, and he um, is a, a friend of mine from way back in 1981, I think, or 82 is when I met Tony, 
he and I were in the same pilot training class. And so we went through a U.S. Air Force pilot training together. And then um, later in that year, October of 1982, he was a special part of my uh, wedding. He was uh, the trumpet player, solo trumpeter for our wedding here in Atlanta. Drove all the way from Columbus, um, along with several of my friends, to attend he the wedding. He played trumpet, Jeff. I thought he played second fiddle. Um, <laughs> no, but some, th- some people uh, make the point maybe he's uh, half man and half guitar. Uh, that's nev tech industries there for you, but, uh, yeah, nothing to do with the fender guitar. Um, anyway, so, uh, when I found out that, uh, Dana was flying with uh, Tony, I said, Hey, say hi to Tony and ask him if I still owe him money for playing in my wedding. And at at which point he was rolling around in the seat, like a little baby getting tickled. <laughs> Did he yeah. bring he his? Said, uh, yes, with interest. Yes, he said with interest. <laughs> yeah. Well, the uh, what is it? Statute of limitations has expired. Sorry. Mm-hmm. All right. Yes. Anyway, um, and he so did, he did. He did comment that he's quite proud of the fact that you and your uh, bride, after thirty-five years, are still together. Yeah. So he did comment on that. I, it's a miracle. I, I, I didn't say anything beyond that. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that's not the first time I've flown with Tony. Tony and I uh, actually last year um, during the summertime we had a fantastic trip, which had two long layovers, one in uh, Cleveland and one in Pittsburgh. And little beknownst to me, we're both baseball lovers, so when, when we're in both cities, we got to go to two different stadiums and watch two different teams uh, play against home the home teams. Uh, one happened to be Atlanta um, in Pittsburgh, so it was. Uh, this is the second time I've flown with Tony, and, and this uh, was no no different than the last time. We had a great time. Yeah, he's a he's a great guy, great, great pilot, great and guy. but even better person. He's a yes, top notch. He had and, he had a lot of high high remarks for you as well. Oh well, that's nice. Thank you, Tony, if you're watching. He probably didn't know until what today that I do this podcast. Yep. Okay, that's true. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Jive and it loves me. Coffee and tea is too high for me to sing. Anyway, the coffee fun. That's the Java Jive song by the Ink Spots, recorded in 1940. And the reason why they're serenading us is because we're going to talk about your way to support the show financially, if you have the resources to do so. So, As we always say, if you need to spend your money on things like, uh, I don't know, rent, food, flying lessons, education, important stuff. Please don't send us any money. But if you have any left over, you want to support the show, please feel free to head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. Find out uh, the two different ways that you can become part of the Coffee Fund cadre. Uh, The first is the classic method via PayPal. And the other is becoming a patron of the show via Patreon.com. And since the last show, we've had uh, four folks use the classic method. Chris Randall, Nico Rieger, Luca Van Straten, and Roger Stern. And a new patron. Yay. Um, we've heard this guy's name before, Adam Spink. I believe he's a air traffic controller over there in uh, 
at Heathrow Tower. Thank you, Adam, for becoming a patron of the Airline Pilot Guy Show. We do really appreciate it. If you want to be part of the Coffee Fun Cadre, again, information about it, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Thanks to all of you for your generous contributions. I love Java sweet and hot. Stand by for news. Many, many, many of you uh, sent in feedback regarding this um, article, um, video actually, uh, in uh, the bbc.co.uk news magazine. Um, I'm not sure what they call it, but they were talking about this new concept of, well, I guess it's new to me, circular runways. And I guess there's this um, guy over in the UK, this is all funded by the European Union, I think, this re- research regarding how we could uh, do airports with runways that go around in a circle like a NASCAR track, um, banked uh, circular runways. And I, I just don't really know where to start with, you know, how how wrong uh, an idea that this could be. I mean, there's so many issues that I don't yeah. know where to start. And, well, the amazing thing to me too, is how interested the general public seem to be in this. Like yes. it just intuitively to people who aren't familiar with flying seems like, Oh, of course, this is how we should build all of our runways. Brilliant. What a brilliant idea. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Ding. Um, so, so that was really the amazing part to me because any pilot will look at this and go, <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's not going to work. There's just so too many problems. I guess you know one of the. Uh, I guess we can talk about the advantages of it, if if it worked at all. But you know the the idea that they can like have a uh, infinite number of approaches to the runway. You know, um, a, a circular pattern. Uh, you can come in from any direction. So you know, as far as noise abatement is concerned, that kind of thing. A great idea. Um, I guess maybe the, uh, the the size of the airport can be quite a bit smaller than a typical airport with the long straight runways. You know, I guess basically, you know, the the runway length is not going to be an object at all, right? Because if it's a continuous circle, the you can the, the runway can be as long as you need it to be. Um, but that's about all I can think of as far as you know positives uh, or pros for this, but. I think the yeah, list of cons. <laughs> exactly right. I mean, I, that this is why we've left the, uh, or trying to leave the European Union, because they <laughs> are funding this bloke, Jeff. I think this it, that was the final straw. would justify Brexit. Um, so uh, I can't believe they've actually given this bloke money for this idea. But seriously, I mean, let's just come up with a few uh, of the cons, because... Uh, I mean, uh, with two runways, you can simultaneously have people taking off and landing. With this circular runway, there's only going to be one part of it that's into wind, 
So how can you have simultaneous takeoff and landings? You can only have a landing and a takeoff. So that ain't going to work. Yeah. Well, and how about gonna... landing while you're turning as you're slow and, you know, that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. <clears throat> One of the circular runway, you'd only be into the headwind momentarily. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. A quarter of the way. Yeah. yeah. And for, for a long takeoff, you'd start with the tailwind. You'd move to a strong, perhaps crosswind if the wind's brisk. And then you'd eventually move to a headwind when you might actually then decide that it's safe to get everyone. I'm just going, what? That's going to be just a bit of a controlled nightmare. No. <laughs> Mike Kuypers in the chat room makes a good point. Uh, basically, every takeoff and landing it would be a go around. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, around and around and around. Yeah. You could just um, continually be going around. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, as I said, it's, uh, and as Masha points out in the chat room as well, that this research is years old and really does, she doesn't understand why now it's all of a sudden in the news, but I guess it was a slow news day or something, but it did <laughs> yeah, exactly right, definitely catch the, uh, uh, the attention of many of us av geeks when we saw it and went, what <laughs> are you kidding me? Uh, anyway, um, yeah. Uh, Brian says, was, wasn't this an article from the onion, <laughs> the uh, satirical uh, uh jen's got a good point where do you mount the ils aerials so, right i mean you'd have exactly. to have a whole set of them going all the way around it would be impossible yeah yeah that would be just rather confusing if you're trying to capture a localizer mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, how would you bend the beam yeah, or how would you just i, I mean there's just so many oh so one many of the questions. one of the interesting things in the article said uh the the guy that came up with this idea well um because you have the centrifugal or centripetal forces involved of a banked um, runway, then uh, airplanes could actually fly. They wouldn't need to fly as quickly. And I'm thinking, well, wait a no, minute. That has wrong. nothing to do with, <laughs> with the runway. It has everything to do opposite. with 180 degrees opposite. <laughs> the yeah. flow of air over the wings. That's why we're flying certain speeds. Gosh. Yeah. How does yeah. that work? I don't know. Just I mean, the one like thing I did like was the fact that as you uh, landed and slowed, you just pulled to the inside. And you'd end up in the slow lane, and <laughs> and someone could land right beside you in theory. And okay. Yeah. So I mean, I'm going. Yeah. Okay. Well, fair enough. But I mean, ah. can you imagine? I think controlling, you know, all the traffic on the ground in that uh, scenario with all the uh, just doesn't make sense. <laughs> it, just, it just sounds like a NASCAR race, is what it sounds like. Yeah. With wings no, that the... sounds like more fun. Let's, let's just race <laughs> airplanes around. Well, you know why people watch NASCAR, though, right? <laughs> For hours of boredom. I don't know. That's not oh, true. I well, okay. Most people, you're probably right <laughs> to see crashes. Exactly. Yeah, but so uh, we don't we don't want that. Well, airport. you know why most people watch hockey, right? To see, see fights. fights. Yeah. yeah. The same idea, I guess. Yeah. So I guess you know another point I saw about this was if you think back historically when you know there weren't a lot of airplanes in the sky and there was a lot of there was a lot more free space around cities for airports. Um, you know, a lot of aerodromes were big circular fields, so you didn't have to worry about, you know, picking a runway that lined up with the the wind. So I think some of this came from some of that idea, but that this doesn't work the same way. You can't just have a circular strip of pavement. You'd have to have a big circular field if you were going to do this. And there's no way that logistically would work out now because the circle would have to be enormous and take up more space and it'd just be complete chaos with the amount of airplanes trying to take off and land and be controlled and whatnot. So, and 
Captain Al is at it again in the chat room. What about using all those old Boeings in a demolition derby? Oh, no, that sounds like fun. I'd even drive one of those just for the hell of it. <laughs> oh, boy. All right. Well, so much for that story. Thank you, everybody, for for uh, uh, sending it in for an item of discussion. And yeah, it gave me all a laugh anyway. Disca- a discussion I can think about. All right. Another item that many, many people have been talking about in recent days is this new legislation or ruling by the um, security agencies for a couple of countries in the world, the U.S. and the U.K. to be exact, um, and enabling or establishing these new uh, security screening programs that do not allow for anything bigger than a smartphone uh, to be carried in the cabin of the aircraft. And uh, so each country has a different list of countries from which flights originate that have this ban established. Uh, So basically anything like a tablet or a laptop cannot be carried in the cabin. And interestingly, the list of countries uh, from... uh, which this is uh, affects is different uh, in the UK regulation than it is in the US regulation. Um, so a lot of people are kind of scratching their heads about this one. Absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I can understand why different countries uh, have possibly uh, different threats uh, because it depends uh, very much on your relationship with various countries. So some countries, uh, for example, the UK obviously sees some countries as a threat the U.S. Uh, with this, um, you know, uh, foreign policy might see other countries as a threat. So I can understand how they would be different, um, uh, a little different anyway. But uh, considering we say share the same intelligence to a, a great deal, the U.K. and the U.S., uh, I am surprised they uh, actually did decide to come up with a different list. Um, I'm actually quite surprised to see Dubai on there. Uh, for the U.S. That that was, um, I raised my eyebrows at that. Well, some people have said that uh, this could perhaps be in part a political thing, but I, I kind of put my viewpoint out there that it seems to me that it's not so political, but there must have been something in their um, research or their, uh, what's it called? Um, intelligence. Intelligence, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah. That's why I couldn't think of the word because I don't have any of it. Um, the, uh, you know, the intelligence, uh, from both of our countries that basically indicated that something, uh, is imminent regarding those kind of devices. What was the, uh, Somalia, uh, Airbus 320 or something like that? That, uh, was that, uh, yeah, it was, um, a Somali airline, Somalia where that happened. Yeah. It was a laptop computer or something that had a. Yeah, the guy, the guy had brought it on. He was in a wheelchair and had some kind of a laptop that exploded. He was sitting on the uh, right side of the aircraft uh, near the wing and put a pretty darn impressive hole in the airplane. But um, the crew managed to, uh, you know, fly the airplane to safety. And uh, the only person really that was, I think, injured or killed in that incident was the bomber himself. Um, but. Right. Um, yeah, it, it went off at a relatively low altitude, so the, I think the decompression wasn't as violent as it might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I notice here from the uh, text that I'm reading, Jeff, that uh, 
they believe the intelligence uh, came from a raid by uh, your Navy SEALs in Yemen uh, in January, mm-hmm. uh, which target uh, Al-Qaeda um, or Daesh, as some people like to call it. Um, so uh, obviously if that uh, analysis is proven to be uh, credible, then uh, that would obviously give uh, a, you know a concern. Uh, I'm just scratching my head trying to work out um, you know, obviously, if you're going to be a uh, a bomber who is willing to take his own life, then obviously you can take a laptop on board and set it off when you wish. But by just saying that you can put laptops into the uh, hold doesn't really take away the risk. If you can find a way to get uh, explosives into a laptop, it's going to be just about as easy as it is to get it into uh, cargo luggage as it will be in hand luggage. The only uh, difference really is um, the way you trigger it. So it'll either have to be a sort of time device or perhaps a pressure uh, operated device, um, but neither of which are, are particularly beyond the, the, the wit of uh, uh, a terrorist. Most airliners nowadays are pretty good at keeping to a schedule. So a simple time device uh, like the one that brought down the Lockerbie 747 uh, is, uh, you know, quite uh, easy to do. So I, I can't see that stopping them coming into the cabin is really going to um, make that much difference I to think, the possible um, threat. Some some of the reports that I read, Nick, uh, they mentioned the fact that uh, part of the plan that they uncovered was actually combining several devices together once they were all on board the airplane in the cabin at some point in the flight, um, like assembling uh, parts from various devices and then making it into one large bomb. Um, oh, I see. Oh, okay. Which couldn't right. happen if it were they were all separate in the... But the thing I'm no. kind of scratching my head about is you know, we, we talk about when people, uh, when we bag or uh, gate check bags um, now, even domestically, um, if you have something that has a lithium ion battery uh, that you cannot keep that in your suitcase, you have to keep it with you on board the airplane. So what about all these devices that have all these lithium ion batteries that now we can't access anymore? We don't have any way to uh, suppress uh, an overheat or a fire except for the built-in systems now that we have in uh, our cargo. Yeah, that, that's bins. a very good point, Jeff, because now we, we're much more likely to get cargo fires because uh, we've got holes full of uh, laptops with lithium batteries that can easily overheat. So, yep. uh, I, Well, and, yeah, and a point effect. that was brought up in the, yeah. in the chat room when I have this question as well, um, and this probably applies more to people flying to the U.S. or the U.S. ban because the U.S. ban is only for specific carriers, um, because those are the ones that operate the direct flights to and from these places that are of concern, as far as I can tell, um, or for what I, from what I understand. But what's to stop um, non-direct flights? So someone originates in one of these countries, makes a couple of stops, and is on a you know U.S. domestic carrier. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you solve that problem. Yeah, you and I on the same wavelength because I was chatting to Jeff about this before the show started, uh, Steph, and saying exactly the same. That's, I don't know if you remember the uh, plain tale about the um, Entebbe mm-hmm. uh, hijacking where the Israelis came rescued. Those hijackers got on because they had pre-positioned to, uh, in this case, Greece, right. which was uh, a relatively safe country but had um, 
not a particularly high level of security. That's how they got themselves and their weapons on. Uh, the same is quite possible. Instead of just leaving from one of these uh, band destinations, you just move all your guys uh, off to a different country and mm -hmm. uh, you know let them stay there for a week, and then perhaps they travel on, perhaps even under false documentation to the States. Sure. So I, I'm, I can't see how this is really going to stop it. It, it might be a deterrent. But I think a lot of the time, all it's going to really do is inconvenience an awful lot of passengers. Mm -hmm. And as I mentioned also, as we were having this discussion before the show, um, that's exactly the way the 9-11 um, hijackers uh, basically uh, got around security. They, they started in Portland, Maine, where the security wasn't as, as uh, diligent as it could have been in a larger airport. And then they went from Portland, Maine to Boston, and that's where they... You know, the airplanes that uh, were involved in the 9-11 thing all left Boston. Well, I mean, this is just a continuation of what uh, I think is going on in this country with the um, signing of certain bills by a certain president and trying to uh, eliminate threats from certain countries. Uh, you know, they can circumnavigate that as well. I mean, it's it's a vicious world out there. And, and, and as, you know, as you said, I mean, even, even um, if you bring a laptop laptop on board or or a lithium powered item you can actually you know just use it to start a fire on board the aircraft if you want to want to do that i mean just break the battery you know, take the battery out and break it and and mm -hmm. it's gonna you know it's gonna cause a, a chain reaction so you don't necessarily need to be even a bomb well actually it's interesting you should mention that because uh, i was reading in a security and uh, analysis in uh, newspaper today on the way home uh, from uh, um, Lagos. And uh, they were saying that, uh, of course, uh, it would be quite easy for uh, a lot of um, uh, a terrorists, if they managed to get hold of an aircraft, then they could fill the microwave ovens with lithium-ion batteries and turn the microwave ovens on and turn the microwave oven into a bomb. And I'm going, I don't know, microwave ovens? Do you guys... <laughs> Any microwaves, ovens in your aircraft? No, we have warming ovens. <laughs> I don't think that's gonna gonna hurt necessarily. I suppose if you heated it up enough, you could eventually get it to do a thermal runaway. But uh, it just <laughs> seemed an awful lot of trouble for a terrorist to do. First of all, he's got to get control of the aircraft, and then he's got to find enough lithium-ion batteries to put it in an oven. And then he's got to cook them up and hope they'll go off. Uh, no, I don't. Nobody so. would notice. <laughs> probably. Yeah, you could you could do that very discreetly. Yeah, yeah probably ask for seconds. That was <laughs> delicious. Yes. Mm. Well, anyway, so we'll see what happens with this uh, this new regulation from uh, the two countries, and see if this expands to others, or uh, what we you know what comes of this. I guess. This one's an interesting one. Uh, in Australia, a passenger plane, let's see, what airline was this? Uh, da, 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 I'm trying to find it in the article. Um, it was a Saab 340 airliner, Regional Express Airlines. Uh, Saab 340 was flying along, and uh, one of its two propellers flung off the right engine uh, as it approached Sydney Airport. Uh, the crew reported... Uh, the right engine propeller assembly separated, and they said that the uh, on the radio, our propeller has just sheared off, but uh, normal controls still able to fly. So they were 
luckily able to control the airplane and land without the propeller. But it says not just the propeller, but the shaft that connects it to the engine have all come off and the assembly has fallen away to the ground. And uh, he was quoted as saying, this is very, very, very unusual. It happens very, very rarely. So, <laughs> very, 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 very. I don't, I don't remember on the Saab. I think it's got a free, free spooling um, turbine. Uh, turbo, yeah, the the turbine shaft that goes to the propeller. So it's uh, they're very lucky that the 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 prop went with centrifugal force away from in, from doing any damage to any of the structure. It could have very easily come in, cut the cabin right in half. Ooh. Yeah, don't absolutely. they normally go forwards if they come off? Because after all, they've got all that speed and they're they they're trying to pull the airplane forward. If you suddenly release them, then they just ping off and hurtle off forwards into the distance. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess because you know the, the prop is actually uh, traveling very close to the speed of sound. So, um, so how many? So what does it do, do normally when you see it uh, fly off your uh, engine, uh, Dana? Have you have you seen that? Yeah, it's a normal it's a normal occurrence. It, it's very rarely happens, but you know, once every once every four hundred hours. So um, every time I've seen it go straight past my window, you know, straight ahead of me. And it's interesting, you know, that they even notice it, you know, because it had to fly and flown past them. I mean, I, I don't see if the if the propeller in the shaft came out all as one then there's some type of mechanism i think honestly in the engine that failed that holds the you know the shaft in place so thus when, once you get the, the propeller going so fast i mean it, it probably just flew right past them i mean i have no idea <laughs> i couldn't imagine seeing that wow i mean think of that here goes my propeller yeah, what's oh, that? let's oh. make let's make left a little bit just to make sure we miss it <laughs> did they call any traffic uh, on the right side you know passing us <laughs> <laughs> Very small. Nothing on the TCAS. Yeah, that's that's crazy. But you know, fortunately in this case, right? We talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, if an airplane's propeller can't feather, um, then of course you have a lot of drag out there, like a barn door. So in this case, fortunately, no damage done to the aircraft and no prop out there to drag you down. A lot less wind resistance. Hey, I'm, I'm curious. I wonder if the uh, engine, without all the drag of a propeller to turn just wound itself up to destruction or whether there was something in the engine that shut it down quickly enough to prevent uh, the engine disintegrating? Um, I don't know. That's I'm not question. an engineer. I, I have no I, idea. You're our propeller expert, Dana. Yeah, sure. I am. Yeah. <laughs> you're the best we have. Make something up. <laughs> hey, Tony, in well, our chat room. not in agreement. It's fine. We'll just go. Well, you, know, you know, if you think about it, you've got the uh, – um, Prop lever, uh, prop lever that normally you know controls the RPM of the of the engine. So I imagine if if the prop flew away, um, it, it would have nothing to control, but the lever still wouldn't move. So the gearing mechanism wouldn't have changed inside the uh, in the engine. So I wouldn't imagine the engine would come apart. Does this happen to you uh, very often, Steph? This has never happened to me, thankfully. <laughs> really, really? She's still talking to us. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dana said it once every 400 hours. I'm just coming up on 400 hours. So, uh, oh, uh oh, like watch out. <laughs> Let us know how it goes then. <laughs> I will. I will. Um, Tony in the chat room said, Hey, uh, the, the audio is on VAS Aviation YouTube channel. And so, uh, I just pulled that up. Let's see what we can do here. 
Here, here. Here, here. Hello? The uh, prop has just uh, fallen off the aircraft. And, uh, step on for the instructions. Back 768, the traffic control pad acknowledged. You are happy to maintain 8,000, or uh, you want further descent? Further descent, thanks, Rex 768. Rex 768, descend now to 6,000. You said now it's 6,000, Rex safely. Uh, interestingly, I think that would have qualified for an emergency declaration for me, you know, the whole darn propeller flying off, but uh, these guys were pretty cool about it. Nah, just a pan pan. No, no big deal. I, I think, yeah, I think they declared a pan. I mean, we only declare maydays if, you know, they're imminent um, threat of, you know, losing life, usually. Yeah. So, I guess maybe that's the difference. So over here, you know, we don't use I mean, I know it's in our regulations, but I've never, ever heard anybody utter the words Mayday, Mayday, or Pan Pan. So um, I, I guess over here, uh, in the Air Force, I think we used to use the term precautionary landing or a, uh, a precautionary. Um, but, um, you know, here it's either no emergency or an emergency, pretty much. Would you agree with that, uh, Dana? Yes. Yes, I absolutely agree with that. I've never heard either one of those terms as well. Yeah. I think those are more international. Yep. Um, yeah, whenever we interact, or let me phrase that, I've never had to declare that. But I, you know, whenever you hear the interaction between ATC and any pilots, it's either you're declaring an emergency or not. I mean, that's yeah. really what's at. Right, because a lot of times it's you know a pilot will come on and give information about something, and then the controller will go, uh, "Are you declaring an emergency?" You know, and then it's either yes or no. Yeah. So, yeah. So a little bit different than everywhere else in the world. So we're probably doing it wrong. <laughs> probably. So, well, I actually feel I like mean, the, if you look at the fire aim, uh, aim, specifically the aim, it says that you're supposed to use uh, pan, pan, pan. pan, pan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's and what you're supposed made to it, use. Yep. Yeah. But that's if, you know, you're trying to get people's attention. And, and that's, you know, with us, we're always in radio communication, whereas, you know, like if you're flying uh, overseas and, and you're on HF radio flying across the Atlantic or wherever else that Lagos, like where, where Nick just came back from, you know, you're not in constant uh, radio contact all the time. And so that would get other aircraft's attention or 
or, or a uh, controlling agency's attention that, that could hear you. So I, I think that would be where it apply better versus in the States or most, uh, you know, Canada, Mexico, you know, Caribbean, uh, you're in co- radio contact always. So if you say, you know, well, all right, let me phrase it. Let's say you went down to Mexico and you're talking to the Mexican controllers, you would probably want to say pan, 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 or mayday, 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 because now you've got their attention. They may not understand why I want to declare an emergency. Yeah. Yeah, generally speaking, if the frequency is busy, then saying pan, pan, uh, or mayday, mayday, is going to shut everybody up, because everyone instantly recognizes what that means. Someone's got a problem, and it's a great way to... Uh, get a word in edgewise so i think it's the corollary of what you suggested dana you know it's it's great to use to be used on on busy frequencies if you want everyone to shut up and get some priority for your call by the way they found the propeller um the patrick police uh, sent me a little uh, message uh, saying that they had found the the uh, the propeller and they uh, had uh, found some sheared bolts and stuff so uh, that sounds like it was the reason Okay. Well, the first thing he said in that recording is that propeller flew away. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he sounded very nonchalant about it, though. He's like, um, yeah. no propeller flew yeah. away. I think that's t- classic Aussie, that is. You know, is know. it? I've yeah, just I, I the figured it's probably just. You know, no big deal. I mean, they well, have we're still flying. It's fine. alligators for pets. I mean, for gosh sakes. <laughs> no. yeah. Just kidding. Um, so I'll put a link to the YouTube um, audio video. Um, the uh, boss at aviation and uh, you can listen to the rest of that. We just heard about the first two minutes of about 10. So, you can so apparently it came down um, in uh, Bushland near a uh, sports field there in uh, Revsby. Uh, so I'm not quite sure where it, that, what area that is. Um, so, and the police helicopter came and uh, um, picked it up and flew it away. So, ATSB uh, are now examining it to find out why it fell off. I'm sure that operators of that particular airplane and engine propeller combination are probably, you know, wondering. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> Rex, I think that's the airline, um, Regional Sub. Express, they've grounded all five of its aircraft uh, of a similar type until they've found the outcome of the inquiry. I mean, based on the picture, it looks like a Saab 340, which is a yep. very, very, very popular that's what it is. Um, yeah, Saab 340. So there's the A model, the B model. Um, they're they're very popular uh, turboprop aircraft. Probably the, one of the most popular of its time in the uh, in the world until uh, the uh, the dashes came along. Well, dashes have very been popular too, but uh, a lot of airlines operate them. Very good. Um, silver Airways. I think it's silver here in Atlanta. Uh-huh. You see him over parked to Terminal E. Right. Those are all yep. subs. And, uh, yeah, Flagship used to operate them out of Memphis. Um, yep. I remember flying on one of those. Uh, seemed like a nice airplane. Um, it's a very good airplane. Uh, let's see. Here's an airplane that uh, is no longer flying. Uh, a Fokker 50 uh, was coming in for landing at, Wow. I don't know how you pronounce that. W-A-U in South Sudan, Africa. With 40 passengers and five crew, they suffered a landing accident. And here's a quote from the report, uh, Aviation Herald. The 
Uh, in the evening, the airline reported that due to bad weather, the aircraft missed the line and collided with a truck of the fire brigades. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> missed the line. They missed the line. How many fire brigades do they have? What the heck were the fire brigades doing out there? <laughs> um, you know, initially, this was reported as, uh, you know, it showed the picture with the, the whole airplane engulfed in flames, and they said all 44 were feared dead. Turns out that nobody died on this. Everybody was uh, evacuated safely. I think there were some minor injuries, but um, nobody died in this, which is pretty incredible. The whole airplane just pretty much burnt up to, you know, mm -hmm. except for there's a tail remaining, I think. Um, anything else on that we know from that? Uh, I'm, if you hit the fire truck, who's going to put the fire out? <laughs> I'm well, hoping there's more than one. Well, that might be the entire plane for <laughs> It could be. You're right. I mean, I think the very, very bottom picture here is is pretty close to right after it happened because you can still mm -hmm. see the whole plane mostly intact. But you're right. After the aftermath, there's really nothing left. I can't see the line in that bottom picture in the article, um, the, mm -hmm. the one that they missed. <laughs> oh no! I yeah. Oh well. Uh, we hear any more about that? It looks like they lost uh, pretty much fifty percent of their fleet. I think they had two of these. Um, <laughs> so uh, anyway, uh, interesting um, accident over there in South Sudan. Let's jump to the last thing listed in our news folder, and uh, this is of particular interest to Dana and I because it involved an airplane. Um, almost identical to the one we fly, uh, an MD-83. We talked about this. I don't was it last episode or the one before that? Where, uh, last last uh, episode. I think, it was, I think it was last. Yeah, oh, I think be. it was well, anyway, before. Recently, mm -hmm. yeah. whatever. Uh, we yes. were talking about this accident of the uh, Maristar MD-83 taking off from Willow Run Airport in Ypsilanti, Michigan, on the 8th of March. And it was uh, a charter flight carrying the Michigan... Um, the University of Michigan's men's basketball team and apparently band and supporters and a bunch of people on the uh, airplane. And they rejected their takeoff, overrun, or overran the end of the runway and uh, basically did pretty serious damage to the airplane. But again, this is one of those instances, almost a miracle, I'd say, that nobody was seriously injured in this accident. And we were all kind of scratching our head. Why, you know, what happened here? Uh, we do know that the meteorological conditions were um, not very favorable as far as the wind is concerned. Very, very strong winds. And um, what the NTSB has uh, uh, given out in a an update, uh, they're focusing on the right elevator on which flight data indicates did not move during taxi or the takeoff roll. The left elevator, however, did appear to operate normally, swinging to a nose-up position consistent with rotation at 152 knots. The left elevator maintained the nose-up position for five seconds until the aircraft reached 166 knots. The aircraft, however, did not pitch up. Airspeed increased to 173 knots. We're now getting very, very fast. And the pilots rejected the takeoff. Uh, the NTSB's on-site inspectors found the right elevator jammed. Uh, here's a quote from the uh, spokesperson from the NTSB. When investigators tried to move the elevator surfaces by hand, the left elevator moved normally, but the right elevator was jammed in a trailing edge down position. Airplane nose down. Uh, the right elevator geared tab inboard pushrod linkage was found damaged, which restricted movement of the right elevator. 
after the damaged components were removed, the elevator could be moved by hand. So this control tab to the geared, control rod to the geared tab of the elevator on the right side um, was somehow damaged. There's a picture in the uh, Aviation Herald article of the uh, the jammed uh, or the messed up um, inboard gear. It looks pretty significantly luggage. bent. Yeah. You know, not just a small amount. Right. Um, I suspect, well, I'll see if uh, Dana agrees with me. And, and I noticed this a lot when, um, you know, when we do a control check. Well, first of all, let me start off by saying the the elevator on most, well, all the MD-80 series and uh, I think the DC-9 series as well were um, not powered hydraulically, except for one, there's a component that actually does help um, power the elevator in a situation where you're in a deep stall uh, to help um, get more effectiveness from uh, the elevator in a, in a situation like that. But uh, in normal operating conditions, the way we fly the elevator surface is through tabs, just as we do with the ailerons. And the um, it's kind of a weird system. I don't know if you've ever, you know, been looking at an airport at um, MD-80s taxiing around on the ground. Well, I hope they're taxiing on the ground. Um, and the left and right elevators appear to be, split. you know, yeah, split. <laughs> um it's because they don't have any power going to them. And so once air is flowing over the, the uh, stabilizer and over the elevators, these tabs, which is what we're controlling in the cockpit with our controls, uh, that, that control tab moves and then the elevator surface itself moves. And uh, so there's a picture here in this article of uh, kind of the setup, uh, the control tab, the geared tab, and the anti-float tab on these elevators. And the interesting thing is uh, some people asked uh, in chat rooms, uh, well, does, isn't there some kind of an indication to us in the cockpit that, you know, the, the, the elevator surface is out of position and there is not. No. Um, and the only thing that we're so it, you would actually, it would appear to you that everything is moving normally when you do these control checks. Yeah. Even you're, yes. You're checking for no binding of the control surfaces right. or cables, whatever, but you have no idea what it's doing out there because really actually. the only thing that you'd be able to see moving when you're doing the, um, uh, push forward and push back or pull back on the control yoke is that little tiny control. Well, not tiny, but you know, comparatively speaking, uh, it's pretty small uh, tab out there as, that that is moving when you're moving the uh, the yoke. Um, but yeah, what I was going to say, Dana, seen is in, is when in, we're doing these control check, or actually, the first officer, Dana, does the control check of the yoke, and I've seen guys like really bang the stops and like kind of be a little bit rough with it. And sometimes you can actually feel the elevator banging around all the way to the front of the airplane. It can actually feel the vibration in the fuselage. And I'm thinking that does, that just doesn't seem like it's a good thing. And even sometimes if the winds are really strong and they're blowing from uh, the, behind the airplane, you'll feel the elevator moving and then kind of, kind of banging when it falls back down, if the wind shifts and you, again, you can feel that vibration through the, uh, the airframe, and uh, they said that the this airplane was sitting there at this airport uh, for two days before they flew this accident flight. And I'm wondering, I suspect that these high winds may have been just blowing that elevator around and banging it around, and somehow ended up bending this uh, this linkage. What do you think, Dana? 
I absolutely agree. I think that's exactly what happened. And if you've ever watched any of the videos, there's a couple of them on uh, YouTube that show a MD-88 pilot landing. I've never put anything out there. But you can see them controlling the airplane, you know, with pretty big movements. The reason why is, you know, the slower that you're going is is less effective your, your uh, aileron and elevators are because all you are is flying that very small tab out there. So um, I really think uh, with it banging around, you can see it on a regular basis with those highs. You know, you're just sitting there at the gate and you can hear it going bang, bang. So I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly what uh, caused uh, the elevator to get jammed. And, you know, I have to I have to retract something because when we were talking about this, I mentioned, you know, very high likelihood of a, a, pilot, uh, a pilot error. And, uh, you know, this is actually quite the opposite. It's it's very, um, very good decision, a very high speed, a very, very critical point of flight that they realized that the airplane was not flyable and they did everything they could do to stop that aircraft and the amount of space that they had. And, you know, only a thousand feet past the runway is, is pretty good and everybody lived to talk about it. So fortunately, it worked out for them. So it was a very good, very fast decision. Yeah, I agree, Dana, because I'm just looking here at uh, our um, drills here for a rejected takeoff. And it says here, you know, up to your decision speed, you can reject for lots of reasons, one of which would be malfunctions or conditions that give unambiguous indications that the aircraft will not fly safely. But after V1, after your decision speed, it says... Takeoff must be continued because it may not be possible to stop the aircraft on the remaining runway. So to reject after uh, V1 goes against the uh, checklists. Uh, so you only would obviously only do it if you're absolutely convinced that uh, it's the safest of two options. Um, and uh, these guys made a brilliant decision. Must have been really tough to do it, knowing that they were probably going to go off the end of the runway. But they made a great decision. So yeah, apparently yeah. they're they're going along and they're pulling back on the yoke, and the nose is not rotating off the uh, runway. And at some point you're going to go, well, this airplane this is, is not going work. to fly. Yeah. So we have the only yeah. the only thing that we can do is just try to stop it before we you know all die. So do you think there's justification for uh, an engineering check? Uh, I'm just trying to work <sighs> out how so. you would get uh, something up yeah. top of your tea tail to to move it to make sure that they do operate in the full range. Uh, big pole with a hook on the end. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I can just see that. I mean, that's the first thing that went through my mind is, my God, how I can I can see the NTSB come up on a recommendation of, of you know, if there's going to be high winds of securing the tail. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just can't, I don't know well, how it, in, in outstations you'd ever be able to do that. So I, I can imagine the nightmare that might be associated with this. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Imagine this, you know, even if we had sensors that showed us what the actual tab was doing, in this case, the tab was probably moving just fine. It's just the elevator itself was jammed. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. unless you have air flowing over the elevator, when you do the control check, it's not going to move. So So unless you've got an engineer, well, uh, you know, just before you get airborne and he gives it a prod (laughs) from underneath with a long pole. Not very practical. That one moves. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah. and, and to be fair, Jeff, for putting gus locks in is probably going to cause more accidents right. than it will actually fix because, you know, that, that's an, 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 always a terrible uh, fault with this type of uh, control surface that people forget to take out the gus yep. locks 
and they don't know they're in there and there's no way to tell. That Gulfstream crash outside of Boston, um, they had the control locks uh, engaged and they uh, didn't uh, start their rejection soon enough uh, when they determined that the gust block was still in place and there was too much of a load on the elevators at that point for them to disengage the lock and they uh, tried to stop the airplane too late and everybody died in that accident. Yeah, um, and then look at, and then and look at uh, World War Two. I mean, if anybody remembers anything about World War Two and the development of uh, the best bomber of the world of the war, which is the B seventeen. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear that. Yeah, the, the, the most best US bomber. bomber. You said the Lancaster, didn't you? Didn't I hear Lancaster yeah. in there somewhere? Yeah, that's somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's. If we didn't come to Britain's aid, let me tell you. Anyways, oh, um, the oh, B-17. Let's not go there. <laughs> okay, that's enough. Time out. Continue with your thought without the best bomber yes. part of it. The, the, the B-17 <laughs> uh, lost out. It was in their final test flight uh, with the, the Air Corp. And uh, they were showing this brand new aircraft because it was against you know the Douglas uh, I can't remember which bomber it was. The Dauntless, the Douglas Dauntless. So they were having the competition. Team had won won it out, and they went for the last proving flight on it. They want to take it up one more time, and guess what they forgot to do? Take the control. Got to take the gust lock out, and the airplane crashed. Hmm. So then, thus, they didn't decide not to go with the B seventeen. They decided to go with the Douglas initially, until somebody in the uh, Air Force said, "Well, we need to try this aircraft out," and they figured out after doing their investigation. Well, the gust locks in there, and four, which I don't know, twenty-five thousand of them, something like that. Anyways, that's that's another famous case of a gust lock causing major mayhem. But you guys obviously uh, are going to be concerned about this because what can happen once can happen again. Um, it, do you see a, a way around um, finding this before you know it, before you fly? Is there a way? Well, that- I the only thing that I can say is that if like the uh, the folks at the operations where an airplane is parked overnight uh, knows that the uh, airplane was subjected to extremely high winds, uh, that there should be some kind of procedure to, to ha- have maintenance go out there and check the uh, the elevator. But yeah, I don't see an inspection. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think think about how many probably close to million, millions of hours the DC product, DC-9, uh, D- MD-80, all the MD-80 series, all DC-9 series. Um, and this is the first one that I can, that I know of. Well, wait a minute. L- we, um, no, we were no, talking I'm about... Not, not, no, we're talking about Air California. That's a completely different airplane. No, uh, we're not talking the- about Alaska 261, uh, which was the uh, Acme nut on the um, jack screw. No, I'm not talking right, about that's that. That's completely different. I know. Oh, okay. I know. You're talking what? about um, August seventeenth, uh, twenty fifteen. Just recently, yeah. yeah. Uh, August ago. of twenty fifteen, an MD eighty three Allegiant at Las yeah. Vegas rejected takeoff due to premature rotation. Ooh, how embarrassing! An Allegiant. <laughs> uh, we talked about it this <laughs> on the show okay. in twenty fifteen, and so we were talking about this in the chat room. Well, so what if uh, somebody said, Jeff, what if the opposite occurred? What if it had jammed up, uh, jammed in the up position? And I thought, huh, I think that actually happened relatively recently. And they were rolling for takeoff. 
uh, from 25 right, the nose wheel lifted off prematurely without pilot input at about 120 knots. At that time, tower cleared the next departure to maintain visual separation, and a few seconds later, tower canceled the takeoff clearance when the crew of the Allegiant MD-83 rejected takeoff at high speed. The nose gear touched down again, and aircraft slowed to safety. And I remember us talking about this, thinking, wow, that's not a good thing when the, they found that the elevator, the left elevator boost actuator had become disconnected. And uh, Oh, so I hear about that one. Yeah. And so, I mean, even still, though, I mean, you're talking umpteen millions of hours Two out of. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm so, not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying it has happened. It doesn't happen very often, but these things are getting older. And um, I'm thinking there, there's got to be a, an, an AD put out by Boeing soon for inspections to be made. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, by the way, there's a very nice comment there from Glenn in the uh, chat room. He mentions the Lancaster could fly to Berlin and back just like the B-17, but the 17 could only carry 4,000 pounds in bombs, the same as a mosquito. The Lancaster, on the other hand, could carry a 21,000-pound Grand Slam. Wow. Okay. And, well, I'm, <laughs> so, I'm not going to get this conversation right now. I'm really not going to go down this road. <laughs> yeah, it's probably best. Let's try to yes, keep up yeah. uh, UK-US relations. Um, well, let's do, do it over a beer sometimes. Best as we? possible. Yes, right. <laughs> we shall. <laughs> okay. Ah, well, um, with that, I think. On, on the fact it's flying tinfoil. I'm with sorry, that, I think it is time now for all you to shut up. And let's go on to the best part of the show, your feedback. Captain. Incoming message. That was a sound effect timeout. Okay. Um, let's see. Yeah, let's start with Ben and Jackson. Hello, APG crew. Ben and Jackson here again from Milwaukee. Thanks for reading our last feedback. My wife got a kick out of hearing our words on such a famous podcast. Aw. <laughs> famous, huh? Uh, more like infamous. Uh, I didn't have the heart to break it to her. Uh, who you really are. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no. Wait a minute. Yeah, just, just, you know, you keep know, that just a bubble. Yeah. This time, we actually do have a question. We recently traveled to Phoenix for my annual trip to spring training for work. On our flight, sadly, not on Acme, we saw one of the flight crew came out of the cockpit to use the loo. We were somewhat surprised, as we thought since 9-11, once the cockpit door is closed, it couldn't open until the destination. I suppose the crew isn't expected to hold it for the long haul, but for all of my flights in the last 15 years, I've never seen the flight deck door open. I know Europe has more lax rules on cabin access, but maybe you can explain if we were seeing an anomaly or if the crew just had bladders of steel for all of my past flights. And just to clarify from our previous feedback, Ben is the dad, Jackson is the son. I also was impressed that you pronounced our last name correctly on the first try. So once again, keep the shows coming, and we'll try to keep up. Take care, and talk to you soon. Again, that's Ben and Jackson Harned. And uh, so I just think, Ben, it has more to do with the fact that you just haven't noticed when the cockpit door has been opening and closing, because I think it happens a lot more than you think it does. I see it pretty frequently. Yeah. At least on any flight, more than, you know, two or three hours or so. Yeah. It's going to happen. You bet. 
and you know it 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 may be kind of screened depending on the airplane that you're on if you're on a narrow body you're more likely to see it happen but i think you're going to have to be kind of focused on that whole area where the cockpit door is um you know pretty intently for you to catch it because there there isn't going to be a bell going off or lights coming on uh, although you'll probably hear a bell before it, it does open for a, a certain amount of time because it's us coordinating with the, the cabin crew uh, to uh, mm-hmm. in, in in make our door opening procedure uh, pr- procedures uh, in in effect what am i trying to say because someone from the cabin crew has to go up into the flight deck while right they- unless there's somebody on the jump seat in that right. case they don't but you know usually they have to get into position sometimes they take uh, the uh, the beverage carts and kind of make a, a an obstacle uh, to the first class lavatory for you know for extra safety. It's a, each airplane and each carrier probably has different procedures. And I don't want to really go into a lot of detail about what those procedures are because that that's a security thing. But um, I don't know. Uh, what, and of course, long haul. Obviously, uh, the the door is coming uh, open and closed many many times during the flight because. You know, the crews are taking their breaks and the reg, you know, people are just having physiological breaks, that kind of thing. Uh, Nick isn't allowed to go to the bathroom. Oh, okay. He just sure. uh, pees in the bottle. That's right. Yep. <laughs> I, I have a, a special receptacle. <laughs> and I fill it up and give it to my first officer. Nick, Nick, that, that's not really what that is. <laughs> oh, damn. <laughs> Might just been peeing in his flight bag all these years. <laughs> Every time somebody flies with Captain Nick, they go, what, what is this? He's just can, he with that guy? can you believe his nerve? Oh, my goodness. What a pisser. <laughs> uh, I'm sure you have some commentary, um, Nick. My word. Piss off. Nick. Who, me? Yeah, you. Um, no, uh, I, I, we, in our aircraft, it's much harder to see because we've got an entire galley between us and the the first row of seats, so uh, there's no way you can see, and unless you've actually got into the galley area, you can't even see the cockpit door. So, And w- we have a pretty sophisticated um, uh, monitoring system so that we can make sure the area all around the door is safe so we can open it and get out. Once we're out, uh, it's safe again. We we don't have a procedure where we have to put a uh, a replacement person on the flight deck. Uh, I think part of that was because uh, um, the cabin crew don't require many months training or even weeks training before they're live on the aircraft and uh, working away. And their security checks are, are there, but they're probably not as um, uh, as thorough as they would be for flight crew. So uh, we, uh, from a security point of view, thought it was not actually as advantageous to bring on someone who might have only been working with the company for a month or two to be on the flight deck sitting behind the remaining pilot where they have access to things like, say, a crash axe, which we have on the flight deck. Um, and uh, we thought it was safer to leave uh, the pilot, the remaining pilot, on the flight deck on his own. Uh, so uh, that's the reason we don't have that procedure in uh, in Europe. Yeah, we that's that's crazy. We instituted the. Um, I, I can see arguments actually for for, mm-hmm. for can, both yeah, sides. I can see both. Well, sides I mean, I think too, but... you know, in both cases, it's been thought out, and mm-hmm. the 
level of risk has been assessed and a certain comfort level has been assessed as well. And you have to go with whatever your comfort level is for those particular risks for a particular company. So mm -hmm. it's not going to be the same across the board, I don't think. Right. Um, I don't think there's a right or wrong answer there. I think if you've looked at it and decided, you know, methodically and logically about it, then sure, as long as you can back up your reasoning. I think that uh, for us in the U.S., it is a regulation uh, mm -hmm. established. But um, exactly. the uh, and we and actually that was established uh, immediately after our 9/11 catastrophe. Um, so mm -hmm. it's been in 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 use uh, for quite some time here in the U.S. Um, yeah. All right. Well, um, there you go. Uh, there's your answer, uh, Ben. Uh, we think that uh, you just haven't noticed that the, but as, as you mentioned, uh, or somebody mentioned, you know, anything, maybe it was you, Steph, um, anything less than a two hour flight, normally you're not going to uh, have to open the door to have uh, uh, one of the pilots or both of the pilots go use the restroom or the loo. <laughs> yeah. We have an emergency procedure prior, prior to leaving the gate. It's called yep. a PDP. A PDP, pre-departure P. Instead of the PDC, which is a pre-departure clearance. See how clever we are? <laughs> Chat room wants to know, does it have anything to do with Delta P? Uh, in in our case, topic? it could. It could? <laughs> yeah. Oh, did you say Delta yes. P? Okay, yeah, thank you. For. That is the correct response. Okay. <laughs> thank you. Um, we have some audio feedback from Tarek. Hi, guys. This is Tarek from Meriface Aviation, and I hope you're all doing well. Hello to the whole APG community. And I'd just like to talk to you guys uh, quickly about, in response to the Oh Dear episode. Uh, my first one is, cows are out to get you. And I know this because I've had personal experience. I did some uh, traveling around Europe with my uh, during my hour building to become a commercial pilot. And um, I flew through Germany and had to divert into, a, into a, an airfield in the middle of nowhere because of weather, and I was stuck there for three days. And cows were following me everywhere, just standing at the fence, chewing on their grass, staring at me, and just chewing mischievously for the whole three days. Every time I was near a cow or near... Somewhere there were cows, they would just come to the fence and stare at me. And even when I got in the aircraft, I was taxiing to the holding point. And I get to the holding point, and lo and behold, there's a car. Uh, not a car, sorry. A cow. A cow staring at my aircraft, staring at me, chewing on its grass, mischievously. I look down, do three or four items on my checklist. Must have taken about 15 seconds to do these three items. Look up again. And there are no fewer than seven cows staring at me, chewing on their grass, mischievously. I have to admit, I was very glad to take off that day. And the moral of the story is, German cows are out to get you. So watch out for any pilots going flying through Germany. Honestly, people were there were amazing, amazing food, and really nice controllers. But that's my, my little joke to that. Anyhow, a uh, quick thing about automation is that you guys touched on this a little bit. You know, you're talking about um, the dangers of automation and if it makes flight unsafe. And I'll say automation is just another tool in our arsenal. And if misused, it'll make flight more dangerous, just like any other tool. 
you know, if you extend flats, flaps below v, uh, above VFE, um, then you're going to damage the flaps and potentially cause loss of controls. If you misuse trim, you'll lose control of the aircraft. I mean, if you really misuse trim, right? Um, any of the of the tools you have in the aircraft misuse can lead to a dangerous situation. And I believe automation is just like it. Um, and as you guys said, it's just about understanding it. You know, what's it doing now? That's not a good thing to hear from a pilot using automation. If if I ever were to hear, think that in an aircraft, the first thing I would do would be to disconnect the autopilot um, and fly manually and regain situational awareness. But anyways, guys, thank you very much for listening to me blab on i always use uh speak pipe on purpose because it limits me to three minutes so i've got eight seconds left guys love you all keep the show going it's fantastic bye okay we will and there's our um title right there german cows are out to get you it's true <laughs> nothing no no offense to germany and the the world and its cattle population of cows <laughs> Is that why they wear bells around the necks? I'm just curious. Could be. So you can oh. hear them coming. More cowbell. All right. More cowbell. There we go. I got a fever. And the only prescription is more cowbell. Um, let's continue with a quick one from Mark Adams. He said, hi, guys. Love the show. Just a quick question. Desktop flight simulation is developed to such a high fidelity now that most, if not all, aircraft systems are modeled and Flight characteristics are purportedly very realistic. Wondered if any of you use desktop flight simulation for casual procedure refresher training and what your opinion is of high-fidelity simulations from developers such as PMDG or Flight Sim Labs. Their simulations of the 737NG, the 747-400, and the Airbus A320 are extremely well done in my opinion. Just wondering if any of you have ever looked at any of these or other flight sim products and how realistic you actually believe them to be. Thanks so much, guys. Mark. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I uh, don't currently use it, but I have in the past uh, used flight sim uh, quite extensively to uh, keep myself kind of things. You know, he's talking about how um, exacting the cockpits are and, and the sounds is you know, the classic, uh, they've actually mastered that sound on the flight simulator. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's a great tool. I mean, I think we had an episode not too long ago, a gentleman that had built up his own personal flight sim. 747 was that, if I'm remembering correctly. So it's, uh, yep. I, I like it. I think, I think it's a ma- it's a, it's a magnificent tool, especially for, uh, if you're training a private pilot or a uh, instrument pilot, especially, uh, they can really hone their skills using the, uh, the latest and greatest uh, technology available on the laptop. As far as the flying part of it, uh, you know, I guess it really depends on what kind of gear you have to interface with the computer and the flight simulation software. But the systems aspect of it, I think, is uh, very realistic and and could be used for. For learning and that kind of thing. I don't personally. I, I was sent a link by somebody, I don't know, sometime last year of uh, a brand new product. I think it was from PMDG, but it may have been another company. They had just come out with their Mad Dog uh, MD80 something or other product. It may have been 88. Um, and uh, he said, What do you, you know, he sent me a link to the thing and somebody had done a recording of a session using that software. And I was really, really surprised at how 
accurate the layout of everything was and how everything worked and and, and it was I was very impressed but um no I don't personally use them uh Steph do you uh, use them I products? have never used any of those flight simulators and I really haven't used any flight simulators so I don't have a good response or answer to Mark's question unfortunately um sorry Mark <laughs> you know this with this you know honestly Steph with the Cirrus if you use the you know some of their programs to mm-hmm. uh, um Train with the, what's the GS one thousand? Yeah, um, it's similar to the, the G one thousand. Yeah, the G one thousand. So if 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 you were to actually use that, uh, you know, when you get into the aircraft, your familiarity would be a whole lot better. Just saying. Potentially. <laughs> potentially. Potentially. Hey, Dana. You know, instead of what? Uh, tell tell Julie to stop watching Netflix. Your your uh, signal is kind of getting getting kind of bad. Oh. Well, it's probably because everybody's getting home in the neighborhood. Yeah, that could be it, too. Um, I just thought I'd let you know that uh, we're kind of getting a little bit of Skyping, even though this is not Skype. But uh, anyway, continue. Yeah, no, I I don't disagree with I don't disagree with you, Dana. I think, um, you know, certainly for training purposes and, you know, for official training purposes, they have to be approved simulation devices. But, um, you know, they are very realistic and trying to keep your your skills sharp and just for certain procedural things um you know layout and knowing how to run through all the menus and things like that it's it's really useful to have some of those simulation devices and masha in the chat room says i use flight sim a lot for preparing cross countries so they have a lot of um practical uses that's for sure mm-hmm. i i just don't have any experience with them at all myself Uh, Sean writes, I've meant to send this feedback for the last five months, but I'm only getting to it just now. Uh, you guys have talked about the Evergreen 747 about six months ago, um, if, if you remember. Yeah, we remember that. When I heard about the 747 on the podcast, I was like, hey, I've seen that. In fact, I even rode on the water slide, which starts from the 747. It was good as any other water slide, only better because it started from the belly of a 747. No, Captain Nick, it's Boeing 747. I also went to the museum next door. They had a spruce goose there. And if you want to get a tour around inside the plane, you can pay a fee for a VIP tour or a cockpit tour. Uh, You might want to get there early because I didn't have a chance to tour the plane uh, because the queue was really long. The Evergreen Museum and other facilities are worth a look if you're an avid aviation lover and you're near Portland, Oregon. Only uh, an hour drive from Portland. I also had a chance to take some pics of planes approaching Portland International, PDX. The plane spotting location was perfect because it was only a fence away from the threshold of the runway. Superb images both on camera and eyes at sunset. Well, that's about it. I hope I didn't add to your burden of feedbacks. Yeah. Well, uh, I urge any shy ABG listeners to send in feedback because I want the guys to suffer from overflowing feedback. Oh, thanks, Sean. Clear skies, unlimited visibility, and adequate tailwinds. Sean from South Korea. Korea. South Korea. Um, he sent some really nice pictures here of the, uh, <laughs> I guess, after it exits the belly of the 747, it goes inside this building a very large structure, and I can see these pipes. must be water slide pipes going all over the place. Looks like a lot of fun. 
Um, I think that's the uh, seven forty seven fuel system, isn't it? <laughs> hydraulics. Oh yeah. Oh, hydraulics. hydraulics. I can see the yellow. That's the hydraulic. <laughs> yes. Looking at that orange gunky one, that must be fuel, surely. Or the lav um, servicing hose. Yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's a great use for a seven forty seven to use it for water slide. I think I can't think of anything better. <laughs> um, it also has a nice picture of this the spruce goose. Um, and I've always oh, wanted to see that. Airplane. Yeah. And, uh, a picture of, uh, somebody coming over the fence at PDX, uh, United seven, three looks like. Anyway, uh, we'll put those pictures in the show notes and thank you, Sean, for writing in. Yeah, this is a treat. It's always a treat when we get some audio feedback from this gentleman, our main man, Micah. Um, he said, uh, Let's see, this piece that he is sending us was originally um, originally appeared on the Airplane Geeks, episode 403, Bits and Pieces, June 2016. But it goes really well with this news story. And the news story he's uh, pointing us to is Goodyear deflates blimp but keeps fam familiar form in flight. And so there uh, is an article regarding the fact that the blimps for Goodyear are now retired. And in its place, something else. It's a regular breakfast thing. We try to do it at least monthly, my radio refugee friend and I. We've both been involved with radio for all our lives. We enjoy each other's company and talk about many different things. It's like being co-hosts of our own radio show. The conversation can go on forever, and often does. There have been times when breakfast changed to lunch and we had no idea. We were just talking. I'm sure you've had those kinds of conversations over a meal, over beers or drinks, sometimes just over coffee. You know how comfortable it can get with the right people or persons. It's like family, or even closer. What do you talk about? Could be anything. For us, it might be sports. I've never really been a big sports fan. I mean, I enjoy some American football, but then my friend tutored me in baseball, which I've come to appreciate. Most times we talk about the silliness of life. Like, why I have to pay a separate fee for a cable box, something you can't watch cable TV without, can't buy anywhere else, yet the cable company charges you a separate fee for it. How can they do that? Where do they get their nerve? Charging me for something I can't not have, What's something that I have to have if I buy their service. I mean, that's ridiculous. I mean, oh, see how the conversation goes sometimes? I couldn't even help myself there. Better not get me started. I can go on for hours, and my radio refugee friend is the same way, so often we do. As old radio guys, we're also both news junkies. We talk about day-to-day -day news, politics, the nuttiness of the presidential race in the USA, how, you know, well, I better stop there again before I get going on another rant. But my friend knows I'm an airplane geek, and sometimes he'll bring up a news story about aviation. Unfortunately, he's not an airplane geek at all. And the conversation often goes something like this, when he says, Did you hear about the Army blimp that got away in Maryland? No, I say. There was no army blimp that got away. Yeah, I read it in the news. It flew for miles, took out a bunch of power lines. Oh, you mean the aerostat? Aerostat? Well, a balloon is an aerostat. Any balloon really is an aerostat. Anything that flies, it's lighter than the air. But, but the word aerostat is most commonly used for a balloon with an aerodynamic shape. Sort of like a barrage balloon, like you picture in your mind tethered over London when you think of the Battle of Britain. Yeah, so a blimp. No, not powered. No pilot, no gondola, no engine, no controls other than the tether, so not a blimp. Oh, you mean an airship. 
Well, kind of. An airship is usually a dirigible, like the Navy's USS Akron or USS Macon. Both were destroyed by storms in the early 1930s. Oh, yeah, the Navy had Zeppelins back then. No, no, they didn't have Zeppelins. Well, well, sort of. After World War I, Goodyear purchased about two-thirds of the Zeppelin company, and it was that part of Goodyear, the Goodyear Zeppelin Corporation, that built the Akron and the Macon. But Zeppelin is a trademark word, like, like Jell-O or Kleenex. A Zeppelin is a dirigible made by the Zeppelin company. The Hindenburg was a Zeppelin, and of course the Graf Zeppelin was a Zeppelin. You see, the difference between a blimp and a dirigible is that a dirigible is rigid and filled with gas bags to make it float. If you let the gas out of a dirigible, it still maintains its shape. Blimps, on the other hand, keep their shape through pressure and only when filled with gas. Helium these days. Oh, so the Hindenburg was a big blimp. No, no, the Hindenburg was an airship, a dirigible, made by Zeppelin. At one time, the Navy flew blimps, originally for offshore submarine patrol. And Goodyear flew blimps commercially, but not so much anymore. There are quite a few others that fly blimps, too. MetLife, DirecTV. What do you mean, not so much anymore? I hear Goodyear just got a new blimp. No, in fact, they got a Zeppelin. All the time on TV, they say Goodyear blimp. Yeah, yeah, they were right, but not anymore. Goodyear just got a new dirigible, an airship. It's made by Zeppelin, so it's a Zeppelin. And it's a dirigible, not a blimp. Okay, let's try again. So Goodyear got a Zeppelin? Well, someone at Goodyear may have gotten a Zeppelin. Frankly, I wouldn't mind having one now. A Zeppelin is a big fried Italian donut, like a beignet or a fritter. Do you want some more coffee? And so it goes. For the Airline Pilot Guy here in Portland, this is your main man. Micah. Thank you, Micah. As always, uh, <laughs> very interesting, entertaining, and um, informative. Um, mm-hmm. that was, yeah. That was very good. <clears throat> and, I don't know if I could have explained the difference between all of them before that. You know, yeah. I, I was looking at it as well, and um, I always thought that dirigible, the, the ridgible, whatever, that dirigible. part of the word. Yeah. It's a French word, um, had something to do with a rigid structure, but actually it, it, it means being able to steer something. So I thought that was interesting. Thank you, Micah, for, uh, we always enjoy your, your, your stories, your pieces, and, uh, we'll put a link to the article to which he points in the show notes. I'm just looking at the uh, article here really quick. And there's a funny quote from, uh, one of the company airship historians, uh, the reason that the company plans to continue calling the new models blimps, because Goodyear semi-rigid dirigible does not roll off the tongue. So there you go. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> <laughs> A lot easier to say blimp. Talking about me again? No, right. no, no. Talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. Ross in England um, sent some feedback with uh, some pictures, some updated pictures. He says, I don't know if you remember, but several years ago when I first started listening, I sent you a pic of my daughter and me attached. Well, times move fast. Here's an update. She loves airplanes and fast cars. Uh-oh. <laughs> it's been about great. the pilots? Pardon? How about the pilots? Does she yeah. like the pilots? I, I think she's still pretty young, but... Uh, oh, but she's about the age that, uh, you know, girls kind of like me. And once they get a little bit older, uh, they, they don't anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Unless they get really old, then they like me again. Um, 
So uh, let's see. We'll put a uh, we'll put these pics in the uh, show notes so you can see uh, these gorgeous pictures. This one is great uh, of his daughter and and him. Um, I don't know what airport this would be, but there's a it must be a reasonably sized airport because there's a, a super jumbo coming in to land right behind them. I wonder if they noticed that when they were taking the picture. I think it was just totally coincidence. Coincidental, yeah. Um, a, a nice shot of his daughter in front of this uh, bright red BMW. And, uh, and then, of course, he included the original photos of himself and his daughter on their uh, sofa. Very, very cute. <laughs> anyway, he says, been great les- listening to you guys every week and hearing the show develop. Very well done, and thanks for all your efforts. You you guys keep me company a lot. We're happy to do so, Ross. Uh, let's see. Continuing on. This is going to be an interesting discussion, I think. Um, Orson writes, hey, Jeff, quick question. Well, probably more for Captain Nick. Listening to your discussion about crosswind landings, as you say, in a conventional aircraft, you would push the drift off and counter any side drift with uh, little into wind aileron just before touchdown. Does this apply to the Airbus with side stick controls or would the into the wind movement be interpreted as a turn rather than a side slip prevention maneuver? So uh, the easy answer to that, uh, old chap, and thanks for the question. Uh, it's a great one. Um, is that, uh, as you approach the ground, the, uh, flight laws change to uh, a, a sort of direct law so that uh, you get completely conventional control over your um, control services uh, in the flail. So it's called flail law. I mean, there are the, the, the odd input in there just to try and keep, particularly those of us that fly uh, different types, uh, keep the handling relatively common. But uh, no, uh, the controls work in a completely conventional um, sense when you... Uh, come to do your actual flare and landing so it works just like uh, any other airplane uh, if you kick off the drift the advancing wing will uh, start to rise so you need to put a little bit of aileron in to uh, hold that uh, wing level um, so uh, you actually in your description um, i'm actually looking for it uh, which one is it orson orson there's an awful lot there hey. That's kind of right in the middle. Nick, I have an off-the-beaten-path off question for you, but what happens if the uh, airplane breaks the law? Uh, then it gets arrested. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, as in a conventional aircraft, you would push the drift off. Yeah, you do that by uh, uh, decrabbing the aircraft using rudder and counter any side uh, drift with a little into-wind aileron. So you don't counter side drift well i guess you're talking about the aircraft drifting off the runway what happens is as you kick the drift off as i mentioned uh, obviously you're going to yaw the airplane the advancing wing will get a little extra lift and that will roll the airplane so all you're doing with that uh, aileron is actually just to keep the wings level and a good pilot will just anticipate that slightly and put a touch of aileron in as he kicks the drift off doesn't happen straight away. It's a secondary effect of yours. So it just takes a little while before the aircraft feels that. And um, the other thing is in a really strong crosswind, um, the aircraft is designed so that we actually only kick off about half the uh, drift uh, at the point the wheels touch down. 
and then the uh, drag of the undercarriage will complete the maneuver and straighten the aircraft on the runway for you. So it's not like we have to get the aircraft completely straight before we actually put the wheels down. And that uh, makes it a lot easier when you're doing that maneuver because a big amount of drift, the kickoff will create a lot of roll. If you've already got the wheels on the ground, that's not a factor. So uh, that's the way it works in an Airbus. And um, I think from what I've seen, at least on videos of airplanes landing in high crosswind conditions, uh, that it looks like the in the Airbus, that particular maneuver that you have just described happens a lot closer to the runway than perhaps other aircraft manufacturers as far as uh, the way the controls work and everything else. Is that would that be a true statement? Um. You mean the laws change or the, no. the way we actually do the, the maneuver? It just seems like uh, the airplane stays in a crab a little bit longer and closer to the runway than some other air, aircraft uh, manufacturer types. But maybe that has more to do with the way you were taught how to land in a crosswind. It may also have to do with more with the fact that uh, all, the, all these airplanes that I'm looking at have wing-mounted engines. And, um, you know, that's something you have to be very concerned about when you touch down that – you don't have any or much of a bank in when you touch down. Yeah, that's true. I, I can't comment. I, I can't say I've noticed any di particular difference. Uh, but then again, I haven't really, I'm not one of those blokes that sits to the end of the runways and watch lots of airplanes land, except when I'm waiting to take off. And then I just giggle at the amount of kerfump from smoke and stuff that the Boeings will generate when they land. <laughs> you, you don't see that on an Airbus. It's always very smooth and controlled and, yeah, always Absolutely delightful to watch. So yeah, you need to see um, some of these videos that I'm watching. <laughs> yeah. I think I think you'll find their mock-ups made by jealous Boeing pilots. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's all a big it's a conspiracy. Exactly, all a big conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sad. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sad situation. You have anything to add to that, uh, Steph? No, I mean, you know, certainly the the Cirrus has a. Um, Side stick control. Cirrus is not Siri. Sorry. <laughs> um, oops. oops. I'm sorry. I, yes. I'm not sure what you're asking. I, what did you say? Size. Um, but it doesn't have any of those same alternate law, normal law, flare law. It's just controlled conventionally. So. Okay. It doesn't make any difference. All right. The old pilot's plain tales, burning the forest all. When placed in commission on the 1st of October 1955, USS Forrestal was the first of the supercarriers and the largest warship ever constructed. She displaced almost 80,000 tons and was over 1,000 feet long. When her air wing embarked, she had a complement of over 5,000 sailors and marines, and her main battery consisted of between 80 and 100 aircraft of various types. She was a formidable weapon of war. It is July 1967, and USS Forrestal is in the Gulf of Tonkin, conducting combat operations. The Vietnam War is in full swing, and the U.S. Navy is engaged in the most intense and sustained air attack operations in its history. 
On board Forrestal, the Weapons Coordination Board were meeting to discuss ways to ensure that nothing should stop the smooth flow of aircraft from launching during this intense period of flying. The Ordnance and Weapons Officers were considering the ramifications of a check that had to be done to the Zuni rocket launchers before the aircraft took off. The Zuni was a powerful, unguided rocket that was housed on a triple ejector rack on the F-4 Phantom and was very effective as an air-to-ground weapon. To keep the weapon safe on the deck, an electrical safety pin on the rack prevented any electrical signals from reaching the rockets. However, it was well known that the tags attached to the pin could be easily blown free prematurely. As a backup, therefore, the power lead to the launcher wasn't connected until the fighter was in place on the catapult and ready to go. Before being connected, the power lead would be tested for stray voltages, and should it fail that test, then the aircraft would need to be dismounted from the catapult, causing awkward delays. There had to be a way around the problem. The solution that was proposed was undoubtedly made with the best of intentions and with the pressure of combat operations weighing on them. The decision was that the phase in the regulations just before takeoff would be interpreted as ready to taxi to the catapult so that the connection could now be made with the aircraft still queued. Hastily written draft minutes were promulgated as a memo and the new procedure implemented immediately. Permission wasn't sought from higher authority. It didn't even get as far as the captain. The holes in the Swiss cheese were starting to line up when four weeks later the Forrestal took on a new supply of bombs from the ammunition ship Diamond Head. The Navy had been dropping bombs at an enormous rate, and the demand for the standard 1,000-pound iron bombs, particularly the new Mark 83, had greatly exceeded production. The Forrestal's commanding officer was offered 16 AN-M65A1 Fat Boy bombs, named so after their rotund shape, which he didn't want but since the alternative was to cancel the next day's operations, he reluctantly agreed. His concerns were well-founded. Whereas the new Mark 83 weapons were relatively resistant to heat, shock and electricity and were designed to deflagrate instead of detonate in a fire, the Fat Boys came from a different era. Some of those old bombs were more than a decade old and had spent years being improperly stored in the open air, exposed to the heat and humidity of Guam. The thin-skinned weapons were filled with Composition B, an older explosive that was sensitive to both heat and shock and could increase significantly in explosive power if badly stored or old. Forrestal's ordnance handlers were shocked as they unpacked the bombs. They were in terrible condition, with decades of accumulated rust and grime, and still in their original packing crates, now mouldy and rotting, stamped 1953. Most dangerous of all, some were leaking from their seams, an unmistakable sign that the explosive had degenerated. 
Many concerns were voiced, and one officer wondered aloud if they would even survive the shock of a catapult launch. The captain was hamstrung, but he agreed to store the fat boys alone on the deck instead of in the ship's magazine. Another layer of cheese was in place. It was the morning of July the 27th, and the ship was preparing for the second strike of the day. The aircraft were lined up on the crowded fantail, pointing inwards, the F-4s on the starboard side and the A-4s on the port. They were fueled and loaded, and weapons checks were being completed. Lieutenant Commander John McCain III, later to become Senator John McCain, was strapped in to his fully armed A-4, Opposite him, a mighty phantom was starting its J-79 engines. Beneath the wings of the phantom, the weapons personnel were, in accordance with the new procedures, connecting the firing leads to the Zuni launchers. As the engines came up to idle power, the pilot flicked the generators on to transfer the fighter to internal power. The generators came on under load, and, as was common, the power momentarily spiked. The surge in electricity was soon to settle, but not before a few stray volts found their way into the weapon circuits. The final layer of cheese lined up. McCain heard a low whoosh, and then a low-order explosion from somewhere in front, his A-4 shuddered, and within seconds his aircraft was engulfed in a wall of flame as burning jet fuel gushed from a split underwing tank. The Zuni's warhead didn't have time to arm, but the impact tore the wing tank off. In rapid succession, other tanks overheated and ruptured, each burst tank releasing 400 more gallons of JP-5 into the conflagration. Then a bomb dropped onto the deck and rolled about six feet into a pool of burning fuel. The fat boy bomb casing had split and it was burning with a white-hot ferocity. The carrier's highly trained fire crew responded immediately. Fifty-four seconds after the fire started, Chief Gerald Farrier, the head of damage control team 8, tackled the burning bomb with a PKP hand extinguisher and without protective clothing in an effort to knock the fire down to allow the pilots to escape. Twenty seconds later, his hose crew arrived and began to beat the flames back. The team had been taught that they had a ten-minute window to extinguish a fire and prevent a bomb from detonating, but that didn't take into account the old and deteriorating fat boy bombs. Despite Chief Farrier's efforts, he could see the split casing growing cherry red, and he recognised that a lethal cook-off was imminent. He shouted for his team to withdraw, but the bomb exploded, and less than ten seconds later a second thousand-pounder exploded with even more ferocity, hurling debris nearly a thousand feet away. Ninety-six seconds had elapsed, but he and all but three of Team 8 were dead. Those left alive were critically injured. Lieutenant Dave Clement, the rescue helicopter pilot flying flight guard duty nearby, described it. 
there was a horrendous explosion that shook Angel to zero. It seemed as if the whole stern of the forestal had erupted. Suddenly there were rafts, fuel tanks, oxygen tanks, drop tanks and debris of every description floating in the water below. McCain had been one of the first to recognise the ferocity of the fire, and he escaped the flames by scrambling down the nose of his aircraft and swinging off the refuelling probe shortly before the explosions began. Other pilots, still strapped into their aircraft, were immediately aware of the disaster unfolding, but only some were able to escape in time. The detonation destroyed the two A4s that had been initially damaged, along with their ordnance and remaining fuel. Lieutenant Commander White, who had been in one of the A4s hit by the Zuni, escaped from his aircraft, but he couldn't get far enough away to escape the bomb blast and was killed. Lieutenant Commander Herbert was far enough away to survive the first explosion. He escaped the cockpit of his Skyhawk by rolling off the flight deck onto the man-overboard netting. Making his way down to the hangar deck, he took command of a firefighting team. The port quarter of the flight deck where I was, he recalled, was no longer there. Two other pilots weren't so lucky, and both were killed by explosions during this period while the rest were able to escape their aircraft and get below. The explosions, several of which were estimated as up to 50% more powerful than a standard 1,000-pound bomb due to the badly deteriorated Composition B, tore large holes in the flight deck, causing burning jet fuel to drain into the interior of the ship, including the living quarters directly underneath the flight deck, and the below-decks aircraft hangar. Flaming fuel, water and foam cascaded down into the compartments. Battling the fires below deck was more difficult than topside with the confined spaces, little light, thick black smoke and toxic fumes. Although the fire on the flight deck was controlled within an hour, fires below raged until next morning. Lieutenant Clement and his crew rescued Forrestal crewmen who jumped, fell or were knocked from the carrier no less than five times within an hour. Later they would be shuttling medical supplies to the stricken ship. The continuing explosions on Forrestal's flight deck would rock their helicopter, leaving the ship's aft end, in Lieutenant Clement's words, a mass of twisted steel with holes in the flight deck a vacant space where there had been many aircraft and a towering column of black and grey smoke and flames. Nine bomb explosions eventually occurred on the flight deck, eight caused by the AN-M65 Composition B bombs cooking off under the heat of the fuel fires. The more modern composition H6-based bombs performed as designed and either burned on the deck or were jettisoned, but they did not detonate under the heat of the fires. Repeatedly, detonating ordnance cleared the deck of firefighting teams who were left dead or badly injured. Almost immediately others would run forward to grab the flailing hoses, and even having just witnessed the deaths of their crewmates, would take up their duties. Sadly, the specialist teams were amongst the first to be decimated, 
and without the same training, others lessened the effectiveness of the foam carpets being laid down by washing the decks clear with seawater and carrying flaming fuel down into the decks below through the bomb craters, where men died in their sleep or trapped in the tight maze of compartments surrounded by the inferno cascading down from above. Although the fires on the deck were extinguished within a few hours, below decks they continued to rage for over a day. There were stories told of the brave men of Forrestal for years after. Robert Cates, the carrier's explosive ordnance demolition officer, calmly recounted later how he had noticed that there was a 500-pound bomb and a 750-pound bomb in the middle of the flight deck, still smoking. They hadn't detonated or anything. They were just sitting there, smoking. So I went up and defused them and had them jettisoned. He also told how one of his men, Black, volunteered to be lowered by line through a hole in the flight deck to defuse a live bomb that had dropped to the zero-three level, even though the compartment was still on fire and full of smoke. Black did the job, and later, Cates had himself lowered into the compartment to attach a line to the bomb so that it could be jettisoned. Two Forrestal flight deck crewmen were knocked overboard by one of the explosions. They fell 70 feet into the water were picked up by a rescue helicopter and deposited back onto the flight deck to resume firefighting at once. Ensign Schmidt and his damage control team fought their way into burning compartments. There were times he had to enter spaces that were virtually inaccessible. I asked for volunteers, he recalled, and immediately I had two or three who followed me back into the guts of the fire. Several times people would come up to me and say, What can I do? How can I help? At first he couldn't find work for all the people who wanted to help. I can't give enough praise to the sailors I supervised. They fought the fire and did all the dirty jobs. Those kids worked all night, 28 hours, containing the fire. I've nothing but praise for the American sailor. Sadly, time prevents me from recalling all the stories of individual heroism that day, as there were many, like the captains of the destroyers USS Rupertus and George Mackenzie, who manoeuvred their ships and held station for hours within 20 feet of the carrier, so that their own fire hoses could be effectively used, a feat which Rear Admiral Lanham called an act of magnificent seamanship. And the skinny Filipino stewards, who weighed less than a 100 pounds and rolled and dragged 250-pound bombs to the edges of the decks and pushed them over. Men died. Men willingly gave their lives for their comrades and their ship. I feel it would be an insult to the memory of the 134 men killed and the 161 who were severely injured to pick over the findings of the inquiry. But suffice to say, procedures and training changed and equipment was improved. It cost over $72 million to repair the Forrestal, not including the cost of the equipment lost, but the largest cost by far was in the lives of the sailors on board. As the carrier steamed for Subic Bay, a memorial service was held for the crewmen who had given their lives to their ship and their country.
More than 2,000 Forrestal men listened and prayed with the chaplains as they paid tribute to their lost shipmates. Three volleys were fired by 13 U.S. Marines. After shipyard repairs, USS Forrestal continued to serve, making many more deployments with the 2nd and the 6th fleets, but she never again deployed to Vietnam. Another great story told by a great storyteller. Thank you, Nick, for that. Wow, what a story. Yeah, it is, Jeff. Uh, There's um, a couple of um, really interesting videos. The ones um, done at the time are possibly the best. Uh, There's more recent ones, a a very good one with some interviews of uh, uh, Senator McCain and uh, some other survivors. Uh, a, a less um, impressive one done by a uh, in an overly dramatic way, but th- they're all worth uh, taking a look at if you're interested. I'm I'm rather glad I wrote the story and and read it from the text and the stories and uh, that I found uh, without watching those because I must admit I I would have found it a very hard story to tell once I watched those documentaries. They are very difficult to watch when you realize um, just uh, how many people were dying and, and the, 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 from the cameras that were actually on the deck, the armored deck carriers and the TV cameras that they had observing uh, the deck at the time. And to watch all these brave men die is, uh, is really quite a difficult thing to do. Wasn't some of that turned into training video as well? Yeah, yeah. Before? yeah, yeah. One of them is actually a, a sort of training mm-hmm. video, uh, and uh, that's actually quite hard hitting because uh, right. it points out a lot of the errors that were made, mainly because uh, some of the sailors who were manning hoses and doing jobs they weren't trained for uh, didn't really know quite how to attack the fire properly, sure. uh, and which is why now the uh, uh, the Navy have um, quite a deep level of uh, firefighting training for every man on board. Uh, there are a lot of lessons learned from this particular incident. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the Navy really did take it uh, to heart. And uh, nowadays, uh, you know, you, you just wouldn't get that kind of thing happening. Gotcha. Yeah. It's amazing it didn't uh, actually sink the ship. Yeah, the amount of water they poured in caused a quite a severe list and at times they were thinking not only that they wouldn't get the fire under control but they thought they might actually um uh you know cause the the ship to sink because they were just pouring thousands of gallons of water the uh the bilge pumps couldn't keep up with the amount of water that they were pouring in to try and uh you know put the fires out wow well thanks again for that uh that great retelling of a great story uh, it is a great story. Uh, it's, it's so much her- heroism uh, went on that uh, that day. It's quite remarkable. You remember that story uh, that we were discussing about the um, small airline in uh, Ireland? Um, oh, uh, the Isle of Man. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. The, the one that um, tried to go to Belfast and came home again. Yeah. Um, we had some feedback sent in by Ivor, and he said flights are canceled as City Wing goes into liquidation. 
air well, operator no. city wing is uh yeah so here's oh the, that was your fault jeff you were so mean about them yeah it's got to be it's, it's all me yeah. <laughs> wait a minute no wait well a minute. we know where the blame lies this, now so no wait i have that to squarely on your shoulders and move on i think we? i know why he yeah. did this because let me read a little bit more of what ivor said in his his uh, uh-huh. email feedback. He says, I hope this is readable. Sorry to mess you about. I blame Captain Nick for this difficult approach we British have. Keep up the good work. So I think in some way he's blaming Captain Nick for this whole thing. Oh, really? You think yeah. that? No, I think you've misinterpreted his words <laughs> entirely. <laughs> well, we'll put a link to the article uh, in the show notes if you want to read more about that. But it looks like uh, I'm still not really sure exactly. <laughs> What was going on? Still a little bit of mystery involved with, uh, you know, the, the their operating certificate being taken away. But we kind of had some guesses as to why uh, they may have been deemed unsafe to operate. Um, but uh, yeah, anyway. Yes, I, I think the fact that the 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 subcontract with this rather dodgy uh, outfit uh, was uh, kind of called to a halt because those people weren't allowed to fly anymore must have hastened their their demise because you can't keep going for very long without airplanes to fly. So uh, I guess that was probably it. I just want to be on the record to say that uh, I did everything I could personally with <laughs> my power to keep them running and operating. And I'm sorry that they're gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, well. you, you think they bought it? No. No. Mm-mm. Hello everybody, good morning, afternoon, evening, night, whatever time it is, whenever you listen. Um, Paul over in the UK, um, I've just got a couple of questions. Um, one relates to a, a, a recent episode where you were talking about um, the performance data of a particular aircraft where they flip the airfield operations, um, this deposed operations in one direction. Um, to allow this particular plane to take off into the headwind um, because it needed it, it needed to for performance data and, and then they put everything back to as was. Um, first question would be, why would, why would they put everything back? Um, surely, you know, taking off into a headwind is advantageous for the performance of all aircraft. So, once you've gone to the trouble of flipping it for the one that needs it flipped, um, why put everything back? Um, I'm sure there's a good reason for it, but it, it, um, not being um, from the aviation industry, it, that reason escapes me. Um, and then question two, um, I just listened to Captain Nick on, on this week's episode explaining that he's he's been in recurrent training this week. He's had a couple of days of of um in the box and and then um like the rest of the week in the simulator so that I, I and i think he just said he did it every six months so that would be one in 26 uh one week in every 26 um so assume call, rounding that to 25 to make the maths easy that's about four percent of pilots at any given stage are, are in recurrent training which um, from what I've heard on the show in the past is mostly repetition of um, things that you already know how to do you've already done and it, it, it's just sort of rehash um, 
and I, I just it got me thinking at how how big a percentage this is compared to I, I mean my industry you're shown how to do your job um, off you go and get on with it and and, and start generating revenue um, occasionally I mean I, I work in the IT field so you know now and again we, we, we do have training courses for this that and the other but it, it's always for something new um, nobody would ever come back to you and say just go over these things that you know how to do and, and just prove to me again that, that, that you know what you're doing and, and you're doing it right um, so it just got me thinking that that such a large percentage of non of staff at any given time are, are not generating any revenue and I, I wondered if that's perhaps one of the highest industries out there because I, I can't think of anything else um, that would even come close um, I don't know whether Dr. Steph can talk about medicine. I mean, I don't know whether once you can, once you've been qualified to do a particular procedure, you just go on and do it, um, or, or do they call you back and reteach you how to do it every so often? I mean, I guess so long as it works on on all the patients, um, you've got that feedback system there, whereby the patients will say, "Yeah, you've you've done this operation and it failed." Um, and by that you can identify specific targets um, for additional training. Those that where all their patients come back and say, yeah, work to treat that doctor. Um, I guess they wouldn't need to go through a quick I don't know, I just, it strikes me as very high and I just wonder what the, what the thoughts of the panel were. Um, keep up the good work guys. Brilliant show, thank you very much. Thank you Paul, for your feedback and um, I guess we can tackle the first part of it where um, he was talking about cases where they'll allow someone to take off in the opposing direction of the, nor the flow of traffic at the time for performance reasons. Why not just turn it around like that for everybody? And I can pretty easily answer that one. Usually, the way that runways are selected for uh, the particular operation has has something to do with the winds, but more often than not, it has more to do with um, the noise abatement uh, considerations for uh, the flow of traffic in and out of an airport and trying to make the least amount of impact uh, to the surrounding uh, city and communities. Um, so they have kind of, what do they call that, preferred uh, operations for at certain hours of the day for bar for certain runways, etc. Unless the wind conditions or whatever are uh, restrictive enough to operate in the least preferred configuration. So in this case, the consideration for the city, the flow of traffic, the community, maybe the way the flow of traffic is working in relation to other airports nearby. I'm thinking, of course, the New York. Uh, area when you have you know Newark and uh, LaGuardia and Kennedy airports and it's all coordinated so that the traffic flows most efficiently uh, so that would be my answer as, as to why they wouldn't just permanently switch the operation around um, and uh, it, for most of us I think that we have enough performance margin to operate in, in conditions uh, most of the time where they've selected a certain runway even though that maybe that's not the best 
um, conditions as far as the winds are concerned, but we can still do it. We still have the performance to uh, operate that way. So I don't know. That's the best way for me to answer that. Any any additional comments about that? Yeah, kind of unrelated. Um, you know, I guess it's like you said, it's a well related, but but different. Um, you know, if it's a truly a performance issue and you have to do it for a certain aircraft, um, then yeah, absolutely. Um, I see it quite a bit for skydiving operations where, like you said, there's a preferred landing and takeoff pattern and it has more to do with efficiency for turning that skydiving operation around. In most cases there, because skydivers aren't going to jump in very high wind conditions, extreme wind conditions. So the winds aren't going to be bad enough to necessitate that, you know, the, the plane taxi all the way down to the far end of the runway and then come back to take off. They can take off with a small tailwind and their performance is just fine for that because it's more efficient for the operation. So kind of the same thing. It doesn't make sense to turn everything around just because the winds favor it if you have the performance to do so. And at some point, um, if, if many airplanes are saying, I'm sorry, I can't use this runway for takeoff. I have to use the opposite runway or a, or a different runway. Uh, then at some point the person who makes the decision, some, I guess the supervisor in the, in the, uh, ATC tower probably says, you know what looks like time to turn. It around. Yeah. It's time to change. So the second part of the question I was having a little bit of deja vu about, cause I think we were just discussing this last night not on the show or in any public forum, but we were talking a little bit about, um, well, I, I guess, I don't know if you want to talk about your flight yesterday, Jeff, and then we can get into it from there. Um, Cause it doesn't really have to do with, um, no, you can, you can jump into it or not, but, um, you know, we were basically talking about recurrent training and how often do you get checked for certain procedures, line checks for pilots versus, you know, and then I brought up, well, for, for doctors, at least in my field, there's no real checks. You know, I've been at my job for, four years now doing the exact same thing and no one above me, you know, either management or we don't have any specific training department. There's training things that we have to do, but they're kind of corporate things that everyone has to do. So it's like bloodborne pathogens and, you know, very general things that aren't specific to the procedures that I perform on a daily basis. No one's coming in to watch me do my specific job, my specific procedures and check those and make sure that they're uh, up to snuff. Basically once you're, you know, licensed and or board certified for for each medical specialty the board certification recurrency requirements are a little bit different ours is a uh, written test once every every what did i say 10 years um you know initially it's a little bit more than that there's a written test and a practical test that you have to go through but then after that it's just a every 10 years written test with every year you have to do a certain amount of continuing medical education but they really don't specify what you have to do that continuing credit in. It just has to be something approved by the AMA um, as a certain level of, uh, uh, they have different categories of continuing education. You have to meet so many different credit hours per three-year cycle, but they don't care what you do that in. So I could go and do a whole bunch of internal medicine stuff and it would satisfy the requirements just the same. So a little bit different for medicine. I, I have a feeling it may have something to do with the number of people that would be affected if you made a mistake? Well, I mean, you know, so I'm not, it's a little bit different than your job where you're flying, you know, potentially hundreds of people at one time. But if you consider the course of a day or a week for me with the amount of patients I see, 
it's not equivalent numbers, but it's still quite a bit of people. So if you're making the same mistakes over and over and over again, that potentially could be problematic. Right. But you'd be have you'd have to make the same mistake over and over and over again. Whereas correct for us, we just have to make that mistake once. Once. Yeah. <laughs> and then we take out potentially hundreds of people. It's a really interesting question because I've never really thought about it in that way. And uh, I think Paul makes a good point. But uh, in my operation, it's different for you guys, of course. Short holder, uh, you operate uh, you know, more frequently. But in my operation, we get a lot more days off than we are actually entitled to in a month because, of course, we're doing much longer flights. We build up our hours much quicker. And uh, in the case of uh, Acme Red, uh, we're only contracted to fly 750 hours. So uh, up, if you fly over that, you can, uh, well, effectively you stop flying when you get to 750 hours if you want to. Um, so uh, when you spread that out over a year, that actually gives a fair amount of time off. So actually uh, when they um, program you for a recurrent simulator, you're not actually using time that you could use in the air because, you know, you don't actually need that the entire year to fly your airs. You only need, say, 10 months of it. The rest of it uh, can be done doing all sorts of things. So there's no penalty uh, in my operation to going the sim because otherwise you'd just be sitting at home having an extra day off that you weren't really entitled to. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that in our day-to-day -day flying, we don't generally practice the things we do in the sim. The things we do in the sim are the things that happen to us once in a career or hopefully never. So I know the statistics used to be that an airline pilot would probably uh, have a one engine failure in his entire career. And if that happened at a critical, critical moment, he had to be prepared to deal with it and to fly the airplane safely, uh, etc. So because it doesn't happen every day and it's not something he practices all the time, the only time he gets to practice that is when he's in the sim. And it's really important. It's a really difficult maneuver at times, or can be, and it's really vital that he gets that maneuver right. Now, you multiply that by all the other types of really difficult emergencies. You can sometimes get multiple hydraulic problems, um, jam flight controls, um, in my case, flight computers that are going down, um, uh, you just think of the myriad of really complicated and difficult emergencies that potentially are going to happen that never happen normally. Uh, and the sim is the place you do that, which is why it's so vital. The only chance you get to have a go at these things and to practice them and have them stowed away in your memory uh, is to do them in the sim. And of course, the more often you do them, the more likely you are to survive and get the aircraft safely back on the ground when you have one of these for real. So that for me is the real reason for it. Today uh, in the jump seat, I had a uh, sim instructor um, and talking to him because I have recurrent coming up in April and asking him a few questions about what they're working on. Uh, and, and what they're talking about is, you know, how we've always trained to, you know, do these avoidance maneuvers for CFIT, control flight and train. Uh, and they've actually moved away from that in the, in the training that they're focusing on, the FAA specifically, because uh, in the last several years, they've had more problems with pilots not being able to control the aircraft um, in flight, stalling the aircraft in flight, you know, Air France and um, what was the latest one? Um, well, I've had many in the last 
you know, yeah. 10 years. A couple of years. So, yeah. so now they've actually, uh, part of the training now is they're focusing more on, um, on maneuvering the aircraft and having a standard way of recovery. Uh, and that's apparently what's what this training cycle is focusing on. So um, I, I think as pilots, you know, it, it I'm kind of surprised here, Dr. Steph, talk about uh, the way that they um, do their recurrent training, which is uh, a lot different than what we do as pilots. I mean, we every nine months, I was explaining that to a, a nervous flyer this morning, you know, explained to her that, you know, as, as, a, as a driver, when you get your driver's license, you go to, to class and training, get tested once in your career or your life. Uh, you know, we're in, we're in the sim, depending on which airline you work for. With regards to what Nick said about practicing things that are vital and you have to get right, we do that regularly. So, you know, uh, the real emergency stuff, the ACLS, the life-saving procedures, BLS, anything that's going to be vital to resuscitating someone, that gets practiced at regular intervals. It's not every six or nine months. It's every two years generally. But, um, you know, those are very standardized uh, things and you go through standardized procedures when when something bad is happening like that. So um, it just yeah. doesn't quite happen the same for, you know, um, your individual procedural technique or surgical technique or the way you practice in the office every single day. So. Right. So pretty much, you know, you're, you're doing all those cr critical procedures every day and we're not experiencing engine failures, V1 cuts. Um, well, I mean, hopefully, I mean, so it, it depends on what you're doing. If you're a, if you're a critical care specialist or yeah. if you're on a, a code team in a hospital, you're going to do those things every day. I can't tell you the last time I had to run a code um, because of someone who was in cardiac arrest or having others, some other catastrophic problem. So well, it just depends. Um, well, as far you know, as like that, that would be what you do day in and day out with your, um, your procedures with uh, sticking needles and poor helpless people, um, you know, it's not like you need to, have recurrent training on that because you're doing it all the time, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is for, in some sense, the same thing day in and day out. And that's what I choose to do my continuing education credits in. And most people do their continuing education credits in something that they're actively participating in, although there's no mandate to do so. And no one comes to your workplace and actually checks you on what you're doing. Yeah. So I think a lot of it has to do with just the, the nature of your job, you know, and, and it happens to be the nature of our job. Um, that uh, we just need to uh, occasionally remind ourselves how to do certain things that, as Nick mentioned, uh, we, or maybe it was both Nick and Dana, that we will never see in our careers or maybe we'll see once uh, if we're lucky. So, um, Or yeah. unlucky. Or unlucky. Or unlucky, yeah, that's right. <laughs> lucky in a sarcastic way. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I honestly, I hope to never see a... Uh, uh, a stall in a, uh, sure. yeah. and certainly that's one of the things that uh, they're focusing on. So, uh, you know, hopefully the only time I ever see that in, in a uh, transport air transport uh, aircraft uh, will be in the simulator. Yeah. So, but you never know. I mean, you might fly in a wake turbulence and, and end up, you know, like American in, in New York. And, and uh, so that, that's what they're focused on is to focus on more of the flying skills instead of the once in a billion that they're looking at the once in a million. Uh, Stuart Aslett in the uh, UK writes, I saw this on the BBC News app, thought you would should see it. And the uh, article to which he is referring 
is, uh, the title is Climate Change, Biofuels Could Limit Jet Contrails. Uh, some close quarter flying has provided new insights into aircraft pollution. U.S. space agency-led scientists flew small, instrumented chase planes directly in the exhaust plume of a big jet to measure the sorts of gases and particles being thrown out. The data suggests aircraft burning a mix of aviation kerosene and biofuel could reduce their climate impact. This would come from a substantial reduction in the production of the sooty particles that make contrails. Quote, these soot particles, soot particles serve as a nuclei for water vapor in the very cold atmosphere to condense on and for the artificial-looking linear contrails that we see when we look out the window. That's uh, Richard Moore from NASA's Langley Research Center. Um, you'll see these lines spread and form cirrus clouds that weren't there before the plane flew through the airspace. And here at the ABG, we'd like to uh, emphasize that these are not chemical trails, but they're contrails. Thank you. Uh, looks like they uh, used a DC-8 um, at uh, cruising speed and altitude to simulate real-world conditions, and then they had some smaller jets. Uh, let's see, does it say what kind of uh, chase planes they used here, or can you tell from the picture in the article here? It looks like they were uh, business jets, maybe Coast Guard Falcons, looks like maybe to me, or maybe beach jets, I can't tell. Um, anyway, like a small business jet um, uh, equipped with some instrumentation to take samples of the air and uh, looks like that would have been fun to well, uh, yeah, get up right in that stuff. Been good for them, Jeff, being in those chemtrails for so long. That's true. Maybe they uh, they turned all the highly toxic chemtrail um, substances off for these tests. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> anyway, so that's interesting. They said that the, there's like a they've been experimenting with mixtures of you know jet kerosene, jet A with um, you know, biofuels, and uh, there is a, uh, a point at which, you know, you, you uh, end up losing efficiency and, and uh, fuel uh, energy and that kind of thing when you, if you put too much of the biofuel in the mixture. But uh, anyway, they, they think that they can, you know, get a blend that uh, would produce 50% less black carbon by number and up to 70% by mass. So that's a good thing. They get rid of the soot. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I seem to remember my brother who uh, was uh, an aircraft engineer. Uh, he's now uh, approaching 70 and retired. But uh, when he did his initial course many years ago on the 7.0, he said you could uh, uh, run those jet engines on coal dust if you tried hard enough. Wow. Yeah, so I've that heard that jet engines can run pretty much on anything. <laughs> Yeah, anything that's flammable, really. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, uh, I, my outfits uh, uh, run engines on uh, biofuel as an experiment to see if it's feasible, and it certainly is. They they certainly worked, but uh, I think the best thing is to to uh, make best use of what's available and try and strive to keep the atmosphere as clean as we can. It's the only one we got. Yep. We're going green. We're going green. We're going to take care of the earth. We're going green. Benjamin Choi from Sydney uh, sent us an article from TheVerge.com uh, saying, is this a drone solution? <laughs> He's uh, being a little sarcastic here. Uh, looks like a U.S. ally uh, was supplied with um, Patriot missiles uh, to defend 
their military organization slash country, and they ended up shooting down um, a $200 consumer drone with one of these $3 million Patriot missiles. <laughs> Not a great return on investment, I'd say. No. Um, so um, I'll, I'll put a link in the in the show notes to this, but they're finally starting to think, uh, hmm, well, you know, it, it was effective, but perhaps um, enormous overkill. And uh, they need to look for maybe lower cost solutions to deal with some of these consumer drones that uh, some military organizations are using, such as a re- I think we talked about um, this video that we saw from one of these consumer drones that were hovering over um, the, quote, battlefield, um, I think it was in Syria, and dropping a bomb directly, you know, using gravity to guide <laughs> the uh, the bomb to the target. And uh, basically, you know, it was relatively effective uh, with a very uh, small financial outlay. And uh, it may, mean, may need to uh, seek different solutions here instead of spending or firing off a $3.4 million, $3. million missile. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it. that's it's crazy. Uh, yeah, it is crazy. Absolutely, it's great. I mean, you you could just send a fleet of these drones and just they, they run out of missiles pretty damn quick, and then you go right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Something expensive. <laughs> that was one of the points they made in this article. They say, well, now they're going to go. Okay, um, we'll just send a bunch of these up, and you're gonna, we're going to make <laughs> you spend billions of dollars. <laughs> exactly. Oops, that's not a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, um, but actually, I, I'm quite impressed. I know that Petri, P- Patriot is a fantastic missile system, but I'm quite impressed that it managed to home onto something so small with such a tiny radar signature. That was mm-hmm. good. Yeah, that just shows the capabilities of that system. Maybe that's why it's sure. so darn expensive. Yes, yes. I no, I, I think a uh, an Ehrlichan, uh anti aircraft gun would have probably been a lot cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, a few fifty cal runs at it, probably taking care of it. Yeah, very most likely. Larry Geezer from Tulsa sent this. He says, "In the absence of Miami slash Alaska Rick providing technical insight and knowledge to the program, I thought that this could fill the void. Proper credit should be given to Rich McKenna, who submitted the explanation to the National Public Radio program Car Talk. It's a radio show." It would be interesting to hear Rick expand on the PAFL theory as some of the finer points were glossed over. Enjoy. I'll play a little bit of an excerpt here from this because I don't want to get into trouble. But this is, again, from National Public Radio's Car Talk radio show. Yeah, We're from the Aeronautical Engineering Department, and thanks to somebody, let me figure this out now, Richard McKenna, who sent us this. He said, what follows is a short synopsis of a grant application I'm thinking of submitting to the government. And what it is, an approach to explaining how aircraft really are able to fly. Yeah, because we know that all that other testimony is a a lie. Most aeronautical engineers and the general public associate the lift generated by a wing with the differential pressure between the upper and lower surfaces of the wing. Nothing could be further from the truth, and God knows we know that. That's not true. In reality... The lift required to travel in a commercial aircraft is furnished by the passengers. <laughs> now, there's a, okay. <laughs> I love... Uh, wasn't quite what I was thinking, but... <laughs> I love theories that just shock you. You know, when you hear the premise, you say, holy cow. <laughs> Here it is. Further, 
The lift is inversely proportional to both the wing size and the distance to be traveled. Farther further, the distance to be traveled has a non-linear relationship to lift, as will become clear in the following explanation. Okay, so that's all I'm going to play of it. I'll, um, you know, link to uh, something that you can listen to the whole bit um, and read the entire thing. I'll read a little bit more. Um, apparently, um, let's see, it'll become clear in the following explanation. Number one, how passengers provide lift for commercial aircraft. The lift required for an aircraft to take off is furnished by the passengers pulling up on their seat armrests. Two, how takeoff Mm. lift is initiated by the pilot. After the aircraft reaches the end of the runway preparatory to takeoff, the captain will advance the throttles on the engines. This action has two purposes, to provide horizontal thrust to propel the aircraft down the runway, and B, to increase the passenger aggregate fear level, which is the PAFL, by raising the noise level in the cabin. The consequent rise in PAFL causes the passengers to strenuously lift up their seat armrests or trying to lift up on them, thus imparting lift to the aircraft. As we can readily see, the engines have two purposes, to move the aircraft horizontally and to scare the bajabbers out of the passengers. <laughs> And it goes on. There are several other points to be made about how this whole thing is affected by, um, you know, passenger lift, etc. So I'll put a uh, link to this in the show notes, and you can uh, read about it yourself. Uh, it's very funny. And, uh, I love this uh, bit here, which says, uh, "At first blush, it may seem that the French would also be a good source of lift." <laughs> Their uncooperative nature makes lift modulation difficult. One should never fly on an aircraft containing more than 45% by volume of Frenchmen. (laughs) (laughs) That was not from Captain Nick. That was actually him reading from this. Uh, Yeah, they do kind of of pick out certain... um, Oh, yeah, they've got a lovely one about the Italians. The Italians are good, yeah. So you, you need to... It's very funny. And yeah. hopefully I, nobody I was going to say that sounds like it, it needs to be in an episode of the Flintstones. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, thank you, Larry, for sending that in. Um, that's a, a great show. A lot of people listen to it and, and uh, enjoy it. Hi, Jeff and Nipiji crew. This is uh, Tadeo Primo from Brazil. I'm not APG listening, but uh, this is my first feedback. I'm a Cessna Caravan pilot from Brazil, flying for a small cargo fleet. I'm a photographer and videographer, and I would like to invite you and the crew, especially Dr. Steph that flies GA aircraft, to visit and watch my YouTube videos. Ah, there's some scenes of uh, the fancy Boeing 747-400 that uh, Rick flies here in Brazil. Uh, Thanks again for the great show. It's always informative, uh, interesting, and... uh, it's my way to keep my English skills improving. Thank you for the, the great show, and I'll send uh, the link for my videos. Thank you. You're welcome. And uh, again, that was uh, Tadio uh, Primo uh, from Brazil, and he flies for a, a small cargo outfit there. And uh, he is a, a, an amazing photographer and videographer. And uh, uh, really, uh, it wouldn't do me any good to play one of the videos because the audio is just really some beautiful music, but uh, that's that's about it. Uh, but they're just works of art, I think. I don't know if oh, you guys had a chance. Yeah, you, you need to go watch these videos. They're they're really great. I really enjoyed them. Yeah, he's a an artist for sure. Um, so thank you, Tadio, uh, for sending in your first feedback, and I'm glad that you use the show to uh, perfect your English and to be able to put yourself to sleep at night. 
that he didn't actually <laughs> say that, but I know. I know. That's that's what everyone <laughs> as, as, really uses the show I for. <laughs> I've come to grips with that. <laughs> hey, it's a, it's a service. It's 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 great. Yeah. I mean, there's we a lot of insomniacs out there that you've undoubtedly helped. Yeah. No, no extra charge. <laughs> Louisiana Steve, I don't know if he's still in the chat room. I did notice he was there earlier. Uh, sent something in uh, very recently. He says, uh, hello, APG crew. Longtime listener, first-time caller. Well, writer, but you get the idea. I noticed the attached article regarding a breakthrough in battery technology. Could this be the breakthrough needed to advance electrical-powered aircraft? At the very least, this should end the threat of exploding lithium-ion batteries in uh, onboard aircraft. And uh, he says... Uh, at 32 years old, I'm working on my commercial certificate with a goal of making it to an airline by 35. Perhaps before retirement, I will get to fly an electric airliner. Cavu and Tailwinds, Louisiana Steve. And the article to which he's referring is uh, from the uh, University of Texas.edu. Um, apparently, a team of engineers led by 94 year old John Goodenow. Professor pretty in the, good for 94. No kidding. He's the dude that is the co-inventor of the lithium-ion battery. Um, they've This team has developed the first all-solid-state battery cells that could lead to safer, faster-charging, longer-lasting rechargeable batteries for handheld mobile, mobile devices, electric cars, and stationary in energy storage. Uh, and so basically the breakdown is um, you'll need to read the article to get all the details, but... Instead of using a liquid electrolyte, uh, it uses a solid, which is a, uh, a glass that uh, is a, an electrolyte. Uh, so uh, apparently these things that uh, are sometimes created called dendrites, I think, or metal whiskers, um, uh, that sometimes cause short circuits that can lead to explosions and fires. Um, because it's not an, a liquid electrolyte, it's a solid uh, it doesn't um, create these uh, dendrites or metal whiskers. So apparently these are very, very safe. And uh, they also can operate um, at very low temperatures, minus 20 degrees Celsius. Um, and uh, they have uh, high conductivity. So um, looks like this all solid state battery cell uh, can be, oh, actually it can, um, can operate under 60 degrees Celsius. So in other words, it can withstand some pretty extreme temperature fluctuations. So that's Siberia. It. Yeah. Of course, this, I guess um, on that end of the scale would be um, Death Valley or something. <laughs> now, 60 right. degrees Celsius. Well, how hot is that? That's like really, really hot, isn't it? I think it's... 150? Well... I don't know. 140? Somebody can do the math. 140? Yeah. That's hot. Um, so yeah, I guess with our regular or our current technology, uh, batteries kind of don't do well when they get too cold or they get too hot. Um, and, uh, so I, I'm, that's cool. I'm glad that, uh, uh, this is a, sounds like a, a pretty big breakthrough and hopefully it'll help us in the aviation world. You know, we were talking about on the last show about somebody had asked about air crash investigation shows like Mayday and all the, they all have different names. He said, I'd like to share a story on how the episode about the Mad Dog Air Alaska crash might have saved my life. I was a very inexperienced co-pilot flying with a recently upgraded captain. We were flying the Fairchild Metroliner, a.k.a. 
San Antonio sewer pipe. <laughs> they make this airplane in San Antonio, and it's it looks like a bit like a mosquito. It's like very very narrow, uh, twin turboprop airplane with really tall landing gear. Um, it's sewer pipe. What, sure. what did you call it? What did they say? San Antonio. Sewer San Antonio pipe. sewer pipe. That's okay. The airplane that I fly, Dana and I fly, they sometimes refer to as the Long Beach sewer pipe, which I take umbrage to because. I was actually created in Long Beach, California, or at least I was born there. <laughs> um, anyway, um, let's see. He flies out of the south of England to somewhere in east or there at this time he was flying at, uh, out of the south of England to somewhere in Eastern Europe. I can't recall right now. I was a pilot flying. And as we were climbing out of flight level one five zero or so, the autopilot kicked off and the airplane nosed down hard. I immediately grabbed the yoke, tried to correct the dive, but the force required was strangely excessive. The Metroliner has no mechanical trim linkage. It's all electrical, powered by two independent channels, one for each pilot. We have a trim and motion buzzer and one indicator showing us the position of the stabilizer. As I was trying to trim out the force, we could hear the beeps, but no motion occurred. I gave controls to the captain. He tried his channel, but we got the same results. I asked for the first notch of flaps. And that did help to relieve the force. At least we could keep level flying, but almost at approach speed. We got the QRH out, and there was nothing related to our problem. The closest we had was trim runaway. We did our procedure and elected to continue across the channel into the Netherlands, where we had a maintenance base. Now, air crash investigation comes to save the day. Due to the commercial pressures, the captain wanted to continue to our intended destination, so he wanted to troubleshoot in the air. His idea was, undo the checklist we just did so that we could get back uh, power back to the trim motors and try to push through the apparent blockage so it would get working again. Immediately, the episode I had watched a couple of nights before came to mind, and I took all of my assertiveness to convince him otherwise. When I mentioned what happened to the Alaska flight, he finally agreed to divert. After a few days, we were told the jack screw was indeed missing a few threads, and had we tried to keep pushing it, the motor might have come out of its support, and then we would be faced with free-floating elevator, which we would have no control over. The captain never apologized. He completely erased from his memory that he ever suggested such a thing. Now, these captains. Um, I know. The Metroliner was a fun airplane on the good days, but I have plenty of stories I'd be glad to share about its design quirks, which sometimes make you think, that the designers had too much whiskey when coming up with it. <laughs> Regards to everyone joining you today. This is from Lufty Lewis. And uh, that's a great story. You know, having watched something, watched that uh, Alaska Air uh, Mad Dog uh, up there troubleshooting and ended up uh, losing the uh, elevator control and killing everybody on board, which was sad. Uh, so I'm glad that, uh, and you know, every accident, it kind of has that effect, doesn't it? Uh, you you kind of think about all these things, um, and what what is it? What do they say? You know, better to learn from other people's mistakes than your own. Yeah, it's always the worst thing though when you uh, hear of someone who has to relearn that because you know, for someone to make the uh, or to find a problem uh, through an accident, and then for someone to ignore it and do it again, that's for me just is you know, oh, unforgivable. It is. I agree. I mean, yeah. you know, if it's already been discovered as a problem and and you know what the 
remedy or counter to it is, there's no reason why it should happen again if there's appropriate recognition and training of said problem or procedure. Certainly right. So. And I guess really the the thing that the lesson that I learned from that particular uh, accident was, hey, if there's something wrong, get the airplane down on the ground as quickly as you can. Because in, in that particular case, if they had, there's a very good probability that they would have been able to get safely on the ground before they lost complete control of the airplane. And it, you know, you you understand mission oriented people like that and wanting to fix mm-hmm. it so they can get the people that paid good money to fly from Acapulco to Portland or wherever they were going that day, Seattle. But, uh, you know, you want to get them there safely, uh, not, you know, if they get delayed, so what? At least they're still. Alive. Yeah. You know, the, the mission should be safety first. Right. Destination second. Misplaced priorities, I guess. Sure. Um, this is a strange one. Maybe we'll end with this yeah. piece of feet. Oh, go ahead, Dana. Say it depends on where the best beer is. Well, that's true, too. I'm sure that was part of the consideration. Seattle yeah, at no. that time had pretty good beer. <laughs> no, they have good coffee. Uh, no, I, I would okay. uh, I would say that, uh, that you know, that's it's been a, a primary a learning point for uh, the uh, airline profession is that, um, you know, don't try to motor on. Uh, go ahead and if you have a control, flight control issue, engine issue, um, medical emergency, you know, don't try to push it. Just go ahead and find a, a nearest suitable airport that's, uh, of course, uh, able to hear and handle your type of aircraft and put the aircraft on the ground. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. So and safety first, for sure. And let the people, you know, that whose, whose job it is to figure out how to fix these things on the ground, let them do that on the ground. You know, takeoffs or optional landing is mandatory. So. Right. Good point. Let's see. Uh, I think we have time to squeeze this last one in. Uh, Kevin sent us a link to uh, nationalpost.com. Um, it's a story about the mystery of a pilotless pilotless plane. Um, apparently it was rented from a Ann Arbor airport and uh, by a... Uh, uh, let's see, some kind of a college it was student. Chinese national study Chine- at University of Michigan. Thank you, a Chinese national. Yeah. Um, and I think that he was like a, a, a what do you call it? Not an undergraduate, but um, going for a a graduate student. Or a graduate. There we go, graduate yeah. student. <laughs> yeah. Not an um, undergraduate, a graduate student. Yes. So he has yeah. an undergraduate degree, working right. on a master's. Right. So he was working on an advanced degree. Uh, it was originally chartered for an interstate trip departing from Ann Arbor Municipal. Uh, and according to the flight plan, it was supposed to land in Harbor Springs, Michigan. But instead, the flight eventually crashed 25 kilometers southeast of the mining town of Manitowage, Ontario. I, sure. Yes, yeah. Uh, traveling a total of 407 nautical miles, or 770 kilometers, the four-seater Skyhawk was presumably placed on autopilot and crashed after it ran out of fuel, just shy of its total range of 440 nautical miles, 60 kilometers north of its intended destination. And they believe that um, the autopilot was on, but they can't prove it. And the reason why they think it was on is because when they found the airplane, the crash scene, uh, there was no human remains uh, at the scene, no footprints uh, leaving the scene of the accident. And they think that the guy 
jumped out of the airplane, committed suicide, and left the, air, the uh, airplane flying, and then it just ran out of fuel and crashed. Very that's a really crazy story. Unusual. Yeah. That that's remarkable. Why? Okay. I hadn't heard this one before, um, and it was it was just the other week, last week. Mm-hmm. Huh. I guess it wasn't you know an airliner full of you know hundreds of passengers, so it wasn't. Well, the airplane itself was empty apparently. Yeah. So, but still, this is a pretty pretty crazy story. Um, you know, so I guess the options are. I mean, certainly he wasn't with the plane, so there's three plausible options. One is that he jumped out, committed suicide. The other is that he did a skydive out of the plane, which I guess you could kind of do. It'd be difficult with that configuration, but you could do it. Or the other is he survived whatever crash landing occurred and he walked out of there and the snow fell after, uh, you know, the plane was already on the ground. Uh, you forgot the obvious one, Steph. What's the obvious one. He was abducted by aliens. Abducted by aliens. You're right. I did forget the obvious. That, that's that's got to be most... it. That deserves a bell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of weird. Um, and then if he did jump out, why would, unless he was trying to make it seem that he was dead and, you know, because you've seen you know, that. You know, if you want to disappear. Yeah. Yep. Huh. So if we hear anything updating us or Kevin from Comux. How do you pronounce it? Comox? C-O-M-O-X? B-C? Let us know, because that's, that's an odd one. All right. I think mm-hmm. we got most of the feedback accomplished. There are a couple I think I, I uh, skipped, but I think we, we got most of them. We did a good job of getting through a bunch of feedback today. So. And, and a bunch a of, of news, news too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so keep sending in that feedback at uh, feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. You can use the website uh, has a way to contact us as well as if you have the uh, mobile app uh, airline pilot guy uh, both for the ios and android platforms uh, you can send us feedback that way as well and you can follow us on social media take it away before hr get, oh yes <laughs> before i get to that yeah. um i think you just said this but i just wanted to clarify because i had, we had a question about it on twitter today the best way to send feedback is still email feedback at airlinepilotguy.com yes Feedback at airlinepilot.com. So I wanted to verify that I was correct. Okay. Yes, you are. So social media. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. We're all there together under one account, at APG Crew. You can find all of us there. Uh, we will respond to you and interact with you most of the time. Um, I'm sorry if you can hear that. My dog has a squeaky toy directly outside my door. No? Okay, oh. good. Um if you're more of a Facebook person, you can go to air, uh, www.facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. And there, we have a presence there. You can also find us on another mobile application called Slack. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on there in terms of perpetual chat room type stuff and information regarding different meetups and planned events throughout the year. Uh, to become a, a member of our Slack community, you must go to Twitter first and contact uh, APG community member Hillel. He's at HI11E1 and he'll need your email address to add you to our Slack community. And there you have it for social media. There you go. And we mentioned the site and the apps and um, we'll have information next episode because I'm going to talk to uh, Captain Rick after the show ends here tonight uh, and get the uh, latest, greatest uh, information regarding the Wings Over Pittsburgh Air Show coming up in May. And uh, somebody had written in and asked if uh, we were going to have some kind of a 
a presence there at the show as far as like a, a place to you know, gather together and that kind of thing. And as far as I know, I, I'm pretty sure that we will. And uh, we're, I think most of us are staying at the, uh, the Marriott Courtyard uh, Hotel, which is like right across the street from the entrance to the 9-11 airlift wing. I, I think I'm correct with that. And, uh, but there are several hotels in that area that you can uh, make reservations for. And as I said, we'll have more information about that. We're really looking forward to seeing everybody in person, That uh, at least those who uh, are able to make it. It's going to be a lot of fun. I guess with that, it's time for us to say, until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. Happy spring, y'all. Bye-bye. Day. W-A-P-G Airline Pilot Cow